trash bags full of money. And um, so that's just like a normal week. That's what we're doing every week, right? And I get a call from Rick Rubin, puts on Mick Jagger, and he says, hey, we're in the studio. We're about to finish the record, and we want to have a party. It's um, Friday night, but we want to have, have the party in one week in, in a house in the Hollywood Hills. Can we do it? And me and Rick were pretty good friends at that time. I was like, yeah, of course. Got it. I'll, I'll get you a couple houses in the next couple of days. We'll make it happen. Click. I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do? <laughs> when this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. And that is the story of human progress. One inch at a time. I'm your host, Joe DiStefano, and you're listening to Stack. In today's episode, I sit with my friend Brent Oldhouse. Brent owns probably the hippest bar in LA. It's called The Bungalow, and there's also one in Huntington Beach. But he and I met through our mutual interest in health and wellness. And at a recent dinner at his house... I was the only one that didn't know his backstory, but first it came out that he was on the TV show, The Hills, and then all these other insane stories started coming out, and I knew that I had to get him on the show. So today we go a little True Hollywood Stories with Stacked, as Brent shares this story of being a drug-addicted high school dropout that leaves rehab and gets a job at a gas station And within a year or two is Hollywood's hottest nightclub promoter who is leaving some of the most insane star-studded clubs with, quote, trash bags full of money. Brent takes us on this wild ride, mixes in a little bit of the LA Times, a little bit of mafia, some business high highs and low lows. And finally, he shares a couple of stories you're not going to hear anywhere else about throwing seriously ridiculous parties for people like Mick Jagger in the Hollywood Hills. So this is a majorly entertaining episode. I know you're going to dig it. Hey guys, so I've got a bunch of Black Friday specials to share with you from our partners. Now I'm going to run through these amazing deals one by one. And I know this show is airing on the 19th of November. So you've got over a week to think about these things and noodle on them. Uh, But I wanted to get you thinking early because all of these deals are amazing. So here we go. First up, Inside Tracker. I've been a huge fan of these guys since about 2015. In fact, just for fun, in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at coachjodi.com slash stacked, I've actually uploaded a screenshot of my cholesterol that Inside Tracker has been tracking since about 2015. So if you want to check out the roller coaster, go check it out. But more importantly, you can see how it tracks your progress, graphs it out for you, and recommends certain foods, styles of fasting, and even exercise programs to help you kind of get all of your biomarkers in line where they're supposed to be. Because, you know, as they say, blood doesn't lie. So if you've changed your diet, you've been changing your exercise program, you've been changing your fasting, well, you better stay on top of your blood to see and make sure that you're headed in the right direction. So how this works is super cool. You buy whatever package you want. I always get what they call the ultimate, 
which is about 43 different biomarkers related to health and performance. But I start a lot of people just with what they call the essentials panel, which is just going to tell you the most important things to get going. It's I think it's 13 panel, 13 different tests, but it includes vitamin D, glucose, inflammation, these things that are just essential uh, to know when you're getting started. And then as you optimize, a lot of times when you optimize those things, a lot of the other things that may be off fix themselves because these are kind of the big three, glucose, vitamin D, inflammation. They also test a whole bunch of other stuff like cholesterol and triglycerides and all that. But um, those are the big three. So you buy your test. You set up an appointment at a testing center, super local to you. There's usually one within a few miles. You get your blood work done. And a few days later, there's this email that you get hit with. And it links to this exhaustive report with tons of valuable information and next steps. It's seriously that simple. Uh, sometimes you can take it up a notch too. Like I'll do this white glove service they offer. You pay a few extra bucks and they actually send a phlebotomist to your house. So you save the Uber, the traffic, the lines, the weight, whatever, and get your test on the same way. Anyways, these guys are running the most insane sale of the year. In fact, last year I was able to buy a couple of tests at once under the big Black Friday pricing that got me through most of 2019. So here's how it goes. You use code Cheers Stacked. That's C H E E R S Stacked. S T A C K E D. So there's two S's in there. And you're going to get $200 off the ultimate, which is that 43 biomarker test that I just told you about, which is going to bring that price basically right into that same wheelhouse where the essentials test lives. So it would be a no-brainer to not take advantage of the ultimate with that code. This is the best offer of the year. And like I said, sometimes you can sneak like a couple extra tests if you want, and then you basically buy them ahead of time at an amazing price. This sale begins Black Friday. But if you're savvy, try the code on Thursday night, and sometimes it works. It's going to run through Monday, December 2nd at midnight. So get ready. Head on over to InsideTracker.com and wait for Black Friday. Next up is Strong Coffee. Now, if you guys follow me, you know how much I love coffee. I've got an espresso machine at home. I fly in beans from all over the world. I take my coffee very freaking seriously. But if you've also followed me for a while, you know that one of the worst things in the world for me is when I'm traveling or otherwise just cannot find good coffee. It drives me nuts because I'm so addicted to amazingly good coffee in the morning. It's a, it's a ritual. It's an experience. I just cannot drink bad coffee. So I'm stoked to say that because of strong coffee, this stuff is that problem is a thing of the past. This stuff is formulated by my buddy, Adam Von Rothfelder. And I've been watching and consuming strong coffee for years. I've watched this coffee change. I've watched the ingredient profiles change. I've watched things be added, taken out. Adam has done all of the work to make sure this stuff is a game-changing supplement slash coffee ritual. I use it on the road. I even use it as a pre-workout. In fact, a lot of the athletes I coach, I, I've weaned them off unhealthy pre-workouts and switched them to strong coffee. This stuff, if you need to get work done, you work in an office, you've got a crappy coffee machine at work, dump a packet of this stuff into a cup, stir it up, add some hot water, and you're done. It mixes amazingly well too. It's got stuff like L-theanine to actually extend the lifespan of caffeine. You'd never crash with this stuff. It's got things like Neurofactor, which just go to 
strongcoffeecompany.com and read about that. This stuff is something I believe everybody should have in their pantry, even if you have an amazing coffee machine like me, because you never know when you're going to need it. And guess what? Strong Coffee happens to be having an amazing Black Friday sale. Here's the deal. They're going to be live. These deals are going to be live Friday through Monday. You're going to save up to 30% on Strong Coffee, plus have the opportunity to buy bundles that are going to include the coffee, mugs, travel mugs, beanies, water kettles, sweatshirts, t-shirts, all kinds of swag from these guys. Plus, if you use code STACKED, Adam and the team over at Strong Coffee are going to toss in a free copy of Adam's ebook, Breaking Fast, and a set of Runga mobility balls that you can travel with, keep them in your kitchen if you want, so your morning routine is done. You can handle your mobility and your coffee at the exact same time. So mark your calendars, head on over to strongcoffeecompany.com on Black Friday, and pick up some of the coolest coffee around. Next up. Not surprisingly, I'm here to tell you about Four Sigmatic because these guys are awesome. The fun guys, they're creating some of the most revolutionary products. They are responsible. I don't know if I can say this, but it's what I think. These guys brought the mushroom game into our world. There are so many kind of copycats now, but Four Sigmatic, I remember the first box of this stuff I got years ago. The logo was completely different. It was, I was like, yo, what is this? This is really weird. Drank it, wasn't really sure about it. I am very sure about it now. I consume some sort of Four Sigmatic product every single day. My favorites are Rishi, Lion's Mane, and the Superfood Protein, which I know I've told you about before. Their products are amazing. And here's the deal. Buckle up. Black Friday, you're going to save up to 50% off their products. Plus, you're going to get an additional... 15% with our code RUNGA. Now, the guys, the fun guys, were very clear. This is while supplies last because when you start dishing 50 to 65% off, things don't last. So the codes are all going to go live Thursday, November 28th. They're going to be live until Tuesday, December 3rd. Again, don't be surprised if all your favorite stuff sold out by about Friday. So get in early and mark your calendar to head on over to foursigmatic.com on Thursday, November 28th. I mean, it's I, part of my life. I can't, like, it's like I'm not running away from it, but right. it's not, I mean, it was certainly a moment <laughs> in time that we can certainly talk about it, but a lot of people know because yeah. that was a big show. Yeah. Was, I'm not invisible in that, in that space, that's for sure. Because you know what's funny is I never really got into that show, but... um but I know a lot of people did. And a I lot think, of people. Uh, like, what was like, what, like, what was that show about? Well, I mean, the show was about f- three girls who kind of moved to LA from Orange County. And yeah. they all worked. And one of the girls worked for me. And then one of the girls worked at Teen Vogue. And one of the girls worked at like a record label. Okay. And so, and at the time, like, the guys that were running MTV were my friends because we were doing tons of events for MTV and they were just people we knew from like just doing stuff. And they were like, right. and I was like, well, I don't know these people are calling me about this thing. And so I called like my friend who was literally like running MTV at the time. And I was like, yeah. what is this thing that show? He's like, listen, we don't, we don't care about you. It's not yeah. about you. Like it's about these girls and their life. So if you don't like what's happening on the show, fire the girl and we're, we're out of your life. 
Like, we don't care. <laughs> We're not going to make you look bad. He goes, there, our agenda is not to make you look bad and mess with your business. Like, right. A, you're a friend, and B, like, it's just not what's happening. So I was right. like, okay, that makes me feel better. Because I'd been approached at that time. It was like the boom of reality TV, right? So we were approached by everybody to do reality TV because at that time we were running like the hottest nightclubs in Hollywood. So everyone was like, I've got to make a show about what you do. And I was like, I don't know how it works. I don't really know how I tell Gwen Stefani when we're doing her New Year's Eve party that we're going to like bring cameras into her party. Right. Probably not going to work out so well. Right. So I understand everybody wants that and thinks that that's a great show. But in the real world... Hollywood doesn't want cameras in their personal life. Right. I mean, some do, obviously. But And was that Hyde? Was that – did she work at Hyde or was it a different nightclub, different bar? No, Gwen Stefani worked for this band called No Doubt. Right. No, I mean the girl on the show, The Hills. Oh. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. <laughs> you give me a runway, I have to land the plane, take Joe. It, take I have to it, land the plane. Um, no, she worked at our company, Bolt House Productions. So okay. she worked. Um, you know, it was like this weird storm that kind of happened. It was is we were doing a nightclub at uh, the Hard Rock in Vegas called Body English. We just we'd opened that, and that was happening. And we were just finishing. We just had partnered with this company, SBE. Okay. And right as we partnered with that company, we kind of finished the deal. With, with MTV. So it was like all these things happened. And then we went and opened a bunch of nightclubs, Hyde being one of them. And so MTV, I think what made that show really great was, is they were actually filming in real locations. Right. And some of those kids were really like Hollywood kids that were like around. And, you know, I'd known Brody Jenner for years before that show. Like he was just a kid that was coming to nightclubs. So, mm -hmm. um, so there was a sense of like, you could be, watching the hills and then picking up at the time like us weekly and people were the only platforms to see any kind of stuff like that the internet hadn't really kind of hit there was no tmz or anything you could be like oh i don't know this they're at the hills or at this nightclub and then you open up us weekly and it's like oh and jessica simpson is leaving that nightclub so it was like this sense of like oh it actually felt very real right so I think that was part of the success is that was rooted that we were a real company doing real things, producing real parties, running real nightclubs. And it wasn't just this, you know, for manner. show, for show that part of it was real. And the girl that worked for us for a period of time definitely was in the office doing work. And when the show became very, very big, it's like everyone stopped working obviously and became people on a show. But we were still doing, we still did everything we always did. They right. would just come in and film in our office and leave. And we'd be like, okay, we still have like six Super Bowl parties to do that. I, you know, that's my wife. The only thing that bings. <laughs> the only. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even have to turn it off because it's like the emergency. Right, right. Gets through anything yeah. in text. Hey, that's important. <laughs> that's... <You> know. <laughs> so it was interesting because TMZ though also kind of came out about that time, right? And that. It, it was kind of around the same area, and you've told the story about Hyde in terms of one of the major kind of well, inflection points of that place. Well, TMZ started at Hyde, and like Harvey was stood outside Hyde with a camera and built that platform right. off of standing in front of Hyde, like watching what was happening there. Right. Right. I, I don't. I've never. I don't know him, so I don't know. If, I don't know if he has the same perception as I do, but that's right. what I saw. Right. Was he was there with a camera, and that show came. Like 
was certainly Hyde was the craziest place in the universe for like a summer or two. Right, right. So at any given time, like how many bars, how many nightclubs were you operating? I, I watched you on, um, there was an interview for Entertainment Tonight or, or one of those. Wow. And, um, Must be old. <laughs> whatever. Does that, that look good? No. Whatever it was. Uh, entertainment, something or other. And you mentioned this idea from a business standpoint. You said something to the effect of like that you never learn to fail. And oh, oh, that was recent. Yeah, that yeah, was, yeah, yeah, I think that was just in the ca- in the case of this educational system right now. I think that that's such an interesting sort of life lesson. Uh, and I'll let you dive into that. But I think that nowadays, in terms of the education system, companies like Facebook and Google, you know, they're not even requiring college degrees anymore. They want to know who can actually get the work done, who can actually. Yeah, hang. I mean, from my own journey, like I dropped out of high school and I was. 16. I got sober. Right. At 16. I've been sober for 33 years, November 15th. Wow. Which is around the corner. Right around the corner. And I made it past the 10th grade. And from, I don't know, the 7th grade to the 10th grade, I was high as fuck. Really? So what education was I getting? Right. Stoned in every class. Stoned at before school, stoned at the break, stoned at lunch, stoned after school. Like how much homework and cognition was happening in my life. <laughs> Mixing a little PCP and crystal meth and acid and mushrooms and whatever yeah. peppermint schnapps, yeah. you know, we could find, pour it all into a big soup bowl. Well, there's not much else it. to do in Joshua Tree, right? No, there wasn't a whole lot to do. So it was, you know, it was just this... So for me, it was like, it's, it's a miracle. And I, you know, I always look at that and I think, well, you obviously don't have to have a, a college degree to be successful, but I can certainly say being somebody now in the business world, there are moments where I wish I had, I probably would have done things a little bit differently if I had an MBA, probably sooner. I probably wouldn't crashed a few planes right. in my twenties Yeah, just because they would have said, Hey, you're going to crash the plane. <laughs> You know, <laughs> so what planes crashed? Because I like to joke, I, I with Runga, I like to say, like, thank God we didn't have a business plan, and you know, thank God we didn't have an an investor that wanted to like push it a certain way. Sure, uh, because I think sometimes the be, the business kind of has to meander. Sorry, the wife is blowing me up. Hey, it's okay. I, I can turn it off. I should turn. Let me tell her I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, because I think that you know when planes crash, I mean those are the biggest opportunities for learning. And if you don't learn those lessons, sometimes in other words, we have to learn the hard way. It's not always, you know, what we can what we can be told. It's like sometimes even if we know the plane's gonna crash, sometimes we we need to crash it to to kind of bounce back and do what we're made to do. Hundred percent. Like I think hunt without I mean you can't really go back to, you know, the Buddha always said, you know, it's the joyful participation in the suffering of the world. Like failing and suffering has just been part of the human experience, I think, since the beginning. Right. Right. So I think I, I always say there's this, we have this such this weird thing, at least in Western culture, like sex, death, and like failing are the things that we are such taboo things. Right. Right. We don't talk about death. Right. You know, we don't prepare for death. We don't, we, we live in denial about it. You know, um, my good friend, Michael Hebb started this thing called death over dinner, which is a pretty amazing platform to 
get people around a table talking about if someone's dying, what do you do and prepare for it? Because he was sort of on a train with some doctors and they realized that the number one cause of bankruptcy in America is someone dying in your family. That's crazy. But it's a crazy statistic, right? So it's like, okay, well, we can solve that. Like just get people information and get some people talking and that can go away because if I know you're dying, Joe, I can plan yeah. and then we can have a better outcome on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. So, um, but like it was, you know, and same thing with like sex, you know, you go, you know, it's such a, this weird thing in this culture around it. that just fucks everybody up, you know, even when you're not trying to be fucked up, it fucks you up. And then you go to certain countries and it's just like, they don't care. It's like, it's not an issue. It's like, it's just not an issue in like. It can be discussed openly. You can. Yeah. Or, it's just, it's just doesn't hold the same charge. Right. Right. Like you can be in Scandinavian countries and it's just not right. like, oh yeah, there's a red light district. Oh yeah. There's a strip club or yeah, there's something happening. Oh yeah. That happens. Like, and it's not like this deep secret. Cause I just, in my own life, I've figured out when things are like in the shadow world, that's when bad things happen. When I'm keeping secrets, right. I'm not talking to people, and I'm doing things in the shadow world. Right. Okay, that's that's where the most damage happens. So, and that's the other thing about failing. Like, nobody wants to embrace their failures. I think there's some talk about it today as, as you have this revival of, like, new age thinking, mm-hmm. which really has been happening for thousands of years. But right. that cycle can, you know, continuously happens and happens. I mean... There's an amazing book called Occult America, mm-hmm. which you think is like, ooh, it's going to be about witches and burning people. But it's really not. It's really – it's an amazingly fascinating book. And I forget the author's name, but you can find that. Yeah. Is um, on the history of sort of the spiritual renaissance that was taking place at the turn of the century and how you got – you know, like it was like – that was all the stuff happening that sort of led to like Dale Carnegie writing a book and like – you know, how to, how to like, you know, um, Napoleon Hill writing a book, like that was all of that was part of that. And those were the big guys that came out of that. But that was all that, this new self-help kind of movement that happened at the turn of the century. Like, can't we be better? Got it. And here we are, you know, a long time away from there. Still trying to still still reading the still same book. Seven new age habits, re- yeah, re- seven re- habits, and re- re- renaissance. Thinking, grow rich, are still yeah, you know they're still relevant. Imprint. Uh, yeah. So so then, what were your sort of what were your failures? What were the big sort of things that that happened to you? And it, and as it relates to your early teens, when you dropped out of school, what was that sort of what kind of headspace were you in then? And then. How do you go from whatever headspace that was to the, I'm going to start a business, I'm going to start a nightclub? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I was in Joshua Tree doing lots of crystal meth and, you know, really kind of a hot mess, right? It was not a good look. And um, I sort of went on a good week bender got home to my parents and just said I needed help. Right. Something caused me to say I didn't want to do this anymore because if anyone's ever tried crystal meth, it's really awesome for a couple of times or it's awesome for a night. But after you've been up, like I was the guy, I was the addict that would be like, oh yeah, that was a 10 day bender. I didn't sleep. Like, and after like day three or four or five, it's not fun. It's not sexy. 
right? You're just like, oh, I hate the way I feel. I hate not being able to sleep because your body's exhausted, but your brain will not shut down and you cannot sleep. So you literally toss and turn until the sun comes up and then you're like, I got to get up. And then you're like, okay, I feel like shit. So what do you do when you feel like shit? When you have a hangover? Math. You do more math <laughs> or, or you have like a Bloody Mary, right? Like that's oh, what, that solves Lord. all problems. Right. <laughs> so. Hair of the dog. <laughs> exactly. Hair <laughs> of the dog. And so, um, but I got in, I went into rehab and um, in Orange County and it was, you know, this, I had a transformative spiritual experience in rehab and I, um, you know, I went in and thinking like, I, I thinking I have a problem with crystal meth. I knew that, but I didn't have a problem with like mushrooms and marijuana. So I was like on the payphone because this is that era. It was like, you got a payphone, right? And you would could make calls on it. And so I remember like telling my friends like, okay, like I'm getting out on this date. Like, let's just have a couple joints ready. Like, it'll be great. Like that was my, my headspace was there because. You just wanted to get rid of the real bad stuff. I just didn't think I had a problem with drugs and I didn't think I had a problem with like weed and alcohol because that didn't bring me any suffering, but crystal meth for sure brought me tons of suffering. So, but then I, you know, working the program that I was working, I was doing, um, a third step and it's where you turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand God. And I had a spiritual experience where I had a cross appear on my left arm and a triangle appear on my right arm, and I had like a white light experience in this room. And they these things manifested on my body physically. And I was like, whoa. And it was sort of that aha moment where I was like, oh, getting sober, following this program was the way I'm supposed to go. Like it was just no turning back. It was like two double doors opened and I walked through them and I was just like, okay, I'm not getting high anymore. Like that was forever changed my life. And what was that? Like what infrastructure put you into that place? Can't tell you. Cause I think, you know, and years later I, I started working with this spiritual teacher, this guy, George Falcon, who was my teacher for many years until he passed away a couple years ago. He always had a philosophy. He was like, we're one agreement away from enlightenment, right? And, and I always understood what he meant because it was like all I did in that moment was say, I'm going to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand God. Like the, an utter moment of surrender, poof. And like my whole universe shifted and it, I was transcended to a different reality that I didn't, I never even knew possible. I mean, so – Whatever that is or whatever that was, but that moment forever changed me for sure. I've never been the same since. So what role does God play in your life today? Because I think on this show, we've we've had a few guests that have brought up belief in a higher power and um, this God as you see God, right? So how do you see God? What role does a higher power play in your life today as a businessman, a father? I mean, you know, obviously I was really, I was raised in a super structured evangelical Christian house and my parents were that way. And I was like a really rebellious kid who wanted to listen to punk rock music and I had a mom that would like break records because I was going to go to hell for listening to that music. So I had this really bad taste in my mouth when it came to sort of fundamental Christianity. Mm -hmm. So... 
I've always sort of not really loved the idea of like church or synagogue or any kind of, it's, it's hard in groups to sort of do that. But that, that doesn't mean there's not a lot of good that happens in those places. I think there is. I think they obviously serve a great purpose. I think you're better to be hanging out there than some other places. <clears throat> but for me, I mean, I mean, God's always played a huge role in my life ever since I got sober because it was like, okay, that's an important – I mean, that really put me on the journey. I mean, I was always on a journey. I was always on some kind of spiritual journey, even young. Right. I feel like I was always sort of in this place of like – wondering, interested in the esoteric or the mysteries or the mystery schools or, you know, the mysteries of the Bible was always really interesting to me, even as a young teenager. Like, And so I was always like obsessed with like the book of Daniels and book of Revelations. And so I was always sort of in that, that headspace. So all of that, you know, I love that. I've always loved the, the mysterious, which is not, really that mysterious at the end of the day, but it is, you know, to a lot of people, I suppose. Right. So, um, but as a practice, I don't necessarily have a practice except for I try to keep my side of the street clean as much as possible. Um, I try to meditate as much as possible. Sometimes I'm good at it. Sometimes I don't do it. What do you mean by keep your side of the street clean? You know, like, hey, like cleaning up your mess, right? Like in life, we go through life and how, how do you keep your side of the street clean? It's like a, a, f a phrase we use in the program I'm in. And you just sort of like, if you make a mistake or you make, you do something that you, that you should apologize for, apologize, right? Like, okay, clean it up. Right. Because in that space and what I learned from being, by being, being an alcoholic and a drug addict was if I don't keep my side of the street clean and I get resentments and I started to harbor stuff and keep some secrets, start living in a shadow world. Like that's when, you know, you're like, Oh, I can't take it anymore. You take a drink or something happens. So right. I've just seen that time and time and time again with fellows who've just fallen. Sure. You know, and you're just like, okay, well how many times do I have to see that to know that that's not a coincidence. Right. You know what I mean? Like, me, me and this friend of mine, Andy, always laugh. He's like, I never, I never meet someone who who went out on a bender that comes back and says that was fucking great. <laughs> fucking yeah, that was good, dude. I was good going out, fucking doing those lines. It was great. Everyone's yeah. like, oh, dude, I went to where I was and a thousand times worse. And oh my god, I used to have a house, right, and a wife and a kid, and now I'm divorced, right. And I'm almost homeless, but hey, I'm back getting sober. It's like awesome. Right. We don't give a shit. Just right. don't drink or use, and you're going to be okay. Right. So, how does that, you know, 30, I think you said 33 years now, yeah. November 15th, how often does that shadow world tempt you, if ever, or did it in your first decade of sobriety? So, yeah. So, you know, like you asked, so I got sober. Um, at age, you said 16. 16. Yeah. And that, I mean, but I was really turning 17. So I, I went into rehab November 15th, let's just say, and I got out November, December 15th. And then my birthday is December 18th. So it was yeah. like, you know, I was <laughs> timely. 16 and then as I turned 17. So, yeah. you know, I can, I sneak in that I was 16 technically, but it really it was like 17. And then I moved. Um, so 
the kid I was with in rehab, his father ran a halfway house in North Hollywood. And like I said, I was in like Brea, like near Knott's Berry Farm in Orange County. That's where the rehab was. And his dad was like, hey, do you want, you know, if you get out and you need a bed, you can have a bed. I don't know. I don't understand this this world. Like I live in Joshua Tree. Like I'm like some weird punk rock kid who's like, you know, I'll like, you know. So I was like, I just knew after having that spiritual experience, like I did not want to go back to my friends in the desert and get high again. Shadow world. Yeah. I didn't want to do that again. So I, I'm like the miracle of all miracles. Like my parents were like, okay, you can go live in this halfway house in North Hollywood, which is crazy when you think about it because it's, it's kind of crazy. You know, my dad, they drove me out there. I, they gave me a few hundred bucks and they said, good luck. Cause wow. my dad's like a blue collar guy working, making 40 grand a year, raising a family of four, which is a miracle. Right. I don't know how anyone does that, but he did. My dad's amazing that way. And, um, I started my life in LA. So, and that halfway house could have been in San Diego, mm-hmm. could have been in Arizona. Yep. I would have gone wherever that guy's bed was. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it wasn't about the location. It was about the bed more than right. anything, right? So, and that, and then that happened. And then- Hollywood sweeten the deal maybe a little bit. Maybe, I guess. I, I mean, really at that moment, honestly, I just didn't want to- Although, yeah, maybe not the place to avoid t- t- temptation, though. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Well, I always say God's got a sense of humor because look what I do for a job. Uh, yeah, that's the irony, right? Yeah. So, um, but, the, but the amazing thing, right, this is how, like, you asked about God in my life. But God has always been in my life, right? I think that you can call God whatever you want to call God, right? I don't know if that's some universal consciousness, a frequency, um, you know, because George would always talk about frequencies, right? When you're in a low frequency, mm-hmm. there's gifts, but they're just kind of lame gifts. The higher you go up in frequencies, they're just better gifts, more gifts, different things, more wisdom, more intelligence. So, um, but I literally like got dropped off at this house, got in my car. I was on like cold water and like victory, drove down Sepulveda to Sherman Oaks, to a mobile gas station that had a help wanted sign in the window. Went in and applied for it because I was like, okay, I need a job. Sit down with the lady, tell her, you know, probably just note to listeners, if you just are newly sober, you probably don't want to tell your new boss that you're newly sober. (laughs) (laughs) But I did. Yeah. I told her and she, and it was like, she goes, oh, interesting. Oh, how much time do you have? And I said, I got like 38 days. <laughs> like Under your belt? Yeah. I was yeah. like wide, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, 38-day sober guy. And she goes, oh, awesome. She had like 90 days sober. Oh, my gosh. Well, you connected on that. And so she hired me, and it's this girl, Judy, and it's a place called Judy's Mobile. It's still in on Sepulveda Avenue in um, Sherman Oaks, and it's still open. And it was the last like full service gas station in LA County. So basically two islands, pump all the gas, check the air and the tires, check the oil, oh, wow. wash the windows. Like Is she still doing that today? That doesn't exist then, but when I worked there, yeah. that's the only way you could get gas. That's super cool. So um, kind of old school that way. Yeah. And so, and the amazing thing was, is she only hired sober guys. So I was like working in this job that only had sober guys. 
living in every halfway house, and then How going. How the hell did you know? You know, this is the universe directing I, you, right? I, I was. This was none what of this. Made you none of this was planned. Station. Nothing, dude. My dad owned a gas station when when I was a kid. Um, he lost it in the gas wars in the seventies. So like cars, gas stations. My dad's like a car guy, so that was always like. Okay. You know, it was just, there was a help wanted sign in the window. I was like, I can pump gas. Like, I knew I could do that. Yeah. And I could check oil. My dad taught me that. Like, so I was like, I could put air in tires, check. I was like, okay, I can do those things, yeah. right? And so I just did, you know, I didn't know. Like, but the rules for the halfway house was like, you gotta have the job, you gotta have a job and you gotta stay sober. The other part about that, it was, it was a halfway house for men. And I was a teenager. Right. Right. So usually if you went into like a teen halfway house, lots of rules curfews, checks, balances. I was in a, a place for adults, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it was like, come and go as you please. Like the only rule was don't get high, don't drink and have a job. Yeah. Now the, the other rule was don't eat the shit in the other guy's cupboard. I'll fucking kick your ass. Right. Got it. <laughs> so it's like, yo, I had a little cupboard. I, I had like three guys in my room. There's like single beds in a room and we all constant we all lived there. So it was just like, you know, it was like it was like a, you know, a family house in Cambodia. It was great. There's <laughs> tons of people in that. It was like 15 people in that house. That's insane. So, but you know, I don't know. So how long were you at the gas station? How long did you stay in that job and I was in that job for I think about a year or so. It's hard yeah. to tell. It's a little bit blurry. Um and so but it was a great job. Like I loved working there. It was so much fun because, you know, there's something that happens when you get sober and you kind of get that bug. It's like life gets good. Right. You have feelings, you get happy, you get connected, you start to come back in your body. Like, so it was a fun time. And like I said, it was all sober guys. So we were always just having a, a really, really good time. And, you know, and it was, a, you know, it's this affluent community in Sherman Oaks. So you would see the same people. A lot of people like had a mobile card and you'd see the same people regulars. gas regulars every week hey good to see you how's it going you start seeing somebody every couple times a week they talk to you or they're nice to you and then there's some guys that were just real creeps and you know, there's a bunch of assholes also that work there that were terrible to you know there's those people in the universe that are terrible to service industry people right so you saw that too so but it was it was just some it was this magical job that i love and judy was great she's still sober i still see her from time to time we talk and text every now and then like she's this amazing woman she's got you know a little more time than me it's incredible <laughs> so it's pretty crazy that that happened that, that it happened that way right like and that's how like that's how god shows up in my life yeah. when i get out of my way uh, things happen right when i get in the way bad things happen right, right. when i want to drive the car hmm, it's a bad idea so how do you teach people that, that like, that Chinese finger trap, that like, it's your efforts that are the problem. It's, yeah, it's hard. It's, you know, know, it's the, you know, it's the, it's the, you know, it's like letting go of the ego. Like really, it's really such a hard, if it was easy, we, it would be, we would not be, we wouldn't be on earth. We would have vibrated off to another dimension and we would be being like, oh, that, the race has cured its karma now. We don't have to figure that stuff out, but we're still stuck here figuring out, like, you know, stupid stuff. And I know 
we can figure out, we can talk about when George entered your life and, and next steps there. But I think that's one of the hardest things for people to grasp and, or, or act on or not act on is this idea of the irony is it's, it's, it's the efforts to, to achieve something specific or to feel a certain way that, that kind of limit your progress towards that thing. And there's this letting go that has to take place in order for things to kind of trickle in. And I've explained it, you talked about frequency and I've explained it that way a lot is that when you are, you know, like you sober, keeping a job, putting out your best self, radiating your best energy, whether you're meditating or doing something else to kind of optimize this spirit that you're putting out into the universe, things on that level, on that frequency will then kind of trickle in. But if we're not in alignment with ourselves, we're not honest, we're living in the shadow world, the wrong things trickle in. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, you asked, so then I did that job for a year or whatever. And then I, I went into, I made, you know, I, I was, I was going to, my dad was like, well, if you get it, if you go to college, I'll pay your rent. I said, Ooh, pay my rent. That's big. Yeah. That's big when you're making three twenty-five an hour. <laughs> That's minimum wage. Yeah. Cigarettes cost a buck. <laughs> right? So it was like, ooh, that's a big deal. Yeah. So I was like, oh, that's a serious conversation. So I was like, okay, but fuck. I hate school. I dropped out of high school. <laughs> I can't go to college. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was in this, you know, um, but being the good alcoholic that I am, I was like, oh. And somewhere in my, and I tell the story before, so sorry if anyone's heard it before, but in a drugged out fantasy in the desert, I cut a girl's hair in high school, short. She could wear short hair. And so she looked cute with it. She was a cute girl. She kept cute hair. So she was like, came to school, short, cute hair. And she was like, who cut your hair? And they're like, she's like, Brent. And so I suddenly started cutting people's hair in high school. And I'd be like, oh, this is awesome. No, no, no. You don't got to pay me. Just give me a little crystal meth. Uh, give me a joint. Give me some weed. What It was just like this whole barter haircutting business I was in. Right. Cash isn't the only currency. No, no, no. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I can. And I was actually pretty good at it. Like I could understand cutting hair like that geometry made sense in my brain. So I was pretty good at it. And so I was like, oh, I'll go to hair school. And I found that Santa Monica City College has hair, has a cosmetology school. So I was like, that's a college. I go there. That's a college credit. Dad, I'm in college. So dad was so like. So no GED or can you just go to haircutting school? Couldn't tell you. I just, just, I didn't even put my GED. I just put, I graduated high school on the application and I got in. I don't know. I don't know how it all works. I, I think in those days there weren't computers. I don't yeah. think there was like real, like yeah. you had to bring your actual transcripts, like yeah. pr fin printed copies, right? Santa Monica College might come back for your diploma. Yeah, now they might come back and be like, we need to go. So I did it. My dad was pissed because that's not, I think that's what he had in mind, but. I did it and he held up his end of the bargain. Yeah. My dad's a super stand up guy. So he was like, okay, he did. And that was great. And then I, you know, like I went to hair school and, um, half, like two thirds of the way through hair school, I slipped a disc in my back. Okay. And it was pinching a sciatic nerve running down my leg and it was crazy. Yeah. Like real deal crying myself to sleep every Debilitating, night. Debilitating. Yeah. Living in a single apartment off of like, La Brea and six yeah. at this moment. And, and at that time I was in hair school. I was also working in a hair salon in the Beverly center. You got to think this is like, 
1987 or 88. Okay. Like cutting hair in the Beverly Center in the 80s was a big fucking deal. Okay. <laughs> so I was like, you know, it was cool. I don't know how I fell into this stuff. So I'm there and then and my progress I got progressively worse cuz when you cut hair what you do is you go to school, you get out of school, you try to get a job assisting a good stylist who teaches you really the that's the person they do. They don't teach you anything in cosmetology school. Yeah. They teach you how to like do finger waves and roll a perm. Like who cares? Like rolling perms nobody likes to do that. I don't care if they do it. They don't like it. It's terrible. But it, it, but so I was like I'm in school and I'm in like assisting a great person at a great hair salon. And that salon was sending me to like Vidal Sassoon hair color classes. So I was like, I was like triple down. I yeah. was like getting the education and the other education and the other education. So I was like. And free rent. And free rent. You're I was a hundred steps ahead of everybody else. And so, um, but then it, my back got so bad that I couldn't really stand anymore. Like I had to sit and I don't know, the employer, you know, ended up like firing me. He's like, you have a bad back. You were firing you, your liability. And I. That was probably illegal. <laughs> I was just going to say, holy smokes, that would not fly today. That would not fly today. But they were like, you probably should find another job. Yeah. <laughs> and I was a kid. I didn't know any better. So it ended up I had to have surgery. So I had a back surgery. What, now, I assume you didn't hurt your back cutting hair. Was there like an We're not really sure what happened with my back. Yeah. We don't know what caused it. I got into like a tiny little fender bender where some like hit my car. So it could have been that. But the pain didn't happen then. It happened like a year after that. So, which totally could happen. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, you know, I've had weird spiritual guys be like, oh, it was when you had the white light experience. The yeah. Kundalini was so powerful. It blew your <laughs> spine apart. I don't know if it's that either. I'm not buying that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not signing up for that one either. But I'm just telling you, these are the stories that yeah. I've been told. Got it. So. Let's go with that. That sounds great. And so I, um. You know, I finally, you know, and like I said, I was, the thing about that back problem was if I stood up straight, it pinched the nerve. It was in that kind of situation. So I hunched over, right. walked with a cane to relieve the pressure because if I stood up, it was like putting that right. nerve in a vice. Yeah. Extension. Extension was just like, yeah, bam. Yeah. So I, and you know, I had to get an MRI. The doctor's like, got to get an MRI for me to do surgery on you. I have to see what I'm doing. I got to know what's going on. Obviously, you're in pain. I believe you, but I need to see before we cut. And so they kept trying to get me to do this. And if I would lie in the MRI table, it was like the worst, most pain in the world because I would sleep curled up in a ball. Oh, got it. And, you know, in those days, I don't know, MRI was relatively new. It was a longer process. Yeah. It wasn't like a 20-minute thing. It was like, you know, an hour and a half in that thing, whatever right. it was. It was a long time. So, I, you know, and they would give me like liquid Valium. They were giving me pain medication. Nothing was really helping because when you, you know, when you are, when you have a bone hitting a nerve, nothing really solves that problem except removing the bone from the nerve. So I had to go. So it was finally like it got down to the point where I had to go to surgery and I was going into surgery. And the day before surgery, the doctor's like, you have to get the MRI. Like, I yeah, can't, like this is critical now. So you got to go do it. So I literally went and this, I got, my surgery was in Palm Springs at Eisenhower Medical Center. And, um, I go to get the MRI and, um, I go into the tube and 
something lies on top of me. Like the weighted? Like a weighted vest. blanket. Yeah. But there was no weighted blanket. Like an entity, I call it an angel, or something laid on top of me, and I had no pain for the entire MRI, which hadn't been able to happen in the last six months. So that was like my second sort of like spiritual experience of like, that was really weird. But I had it, had the surgery. And again, I, thought, I don't know why things happen around my birthday, but the surgery was like on or around my birthday. So I'm, I think I had my birthday in the hospital and then I was home a couple of days later. Yeah. And I was at a New Year's Eve party in LA, after, you know, a couple of weeks after my surgery. Like, that's how fast it healed. <laughs> <laughs> and Okay. So, so so that's how God shows up in my life. Right, right. In these really big ways, which I'm super grateful for because obviously I need, the, I need that kind of attention yeah. to sort of say, hey, wake up. And so I, you know, was like, okay, here, here we are. And Unemployed and pain-free at a New Year's Eve party. Yeah. So okay. that's that was the winter of 1988. Okay. Joe, were you even born? I was three and a half. Excellent. Just making sure. <laughs> <laughs> Joe was three. Yeah. Um, and so, and I had made a couple friends around town because I lived here and I was working, you know, I was working at Beverly Center. And um, I... Uh, I was friends with these designers in downtown LA and then this kid Taff was like, let's do a club together. And I was like, club, club. I was like, what are you talking about? What does that, what does that even mean? <laughs> I didn't even know what that meant. A social club. I didn't even know. And I said no a lot. And then he finally kept pursuing me, which I'm writing, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a memoir. And so I'm going to sit down with him and figure out like why he pursued me. Cause I was always wondered sort of like, what does that mean? Like, why did you pursue me the way you did? Right. Um, I don't really know. And, but he did. And so we ended up doing a party together and it was really successful. And I've always had this belief that as I was going through that back surgery, I was really having, you know, anyone who's ever suffered physically and if they're, if they're not in the place of like just anger and rage, right. If you get in, move past that into a place of like, you start to make all kinds of deals with God. Yeah. I'm going to be a missionary for world vision. I'm going to go dig wells in Africa. Just make this go away. We'll make a deal together. I'll do everything. I'll be your soldier, whatever. You just, you sort of like have this thing, but, but there is a moment with, with chronic pain. Like you have to, you have to accept it. Right. It's a big moment of acceptance. Right. So I had one of those moments in that space of really kind of letting go and being like, I remember I was like crying. I was really emotional. It was like, I thought, I really thought I was going to be handicapped for the rest of my life. And I was okay with it. I was like, okay, let's do, if that's what it is, I'm okay. Right. Like I was okay. Like if this is my plan, if this is the plan, God, then cool. Yeah. Let's get the pain to be not so much, but I'm cool being handicapped. Right. It's like that, you know, the, the, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's, you know, the irony is once you accept yourself, you can change, you know, and it sounds like it's a little bit of that sort of acceptance. And, um, 
it's also that sort of what you talked about earlier in rehab, maybe when you got into them, MRI is just sort of, all well, right, no, God. I didn't, I didn't go into the MRI trying to have some experience. Right. I just was like, fuck, I got to do this thing. So that just happened. Right. I wasn't, yeah. that, that just happened. But what I've always thought and believed is that as a result of sort of right behavior, acceptance at a really deep cellular level, because it was a deep acceptance, right? That when you get to that place, like, oh, and, and, and this is where some of George's teachings kind of make sense to me because he would always teach us that, you know, the chakras are just energy systems and that, you know, when you're in wanting, which is your lowest chakra, it's a low frequency. There's not a lot that happens down there, right? And if you can get out of there and get into gratitude right. or get into acceptance, the frequency's higher and there's more gifts there and things can happen there in that space. So I was like, oh, so I probably just transcended some sort of space. And I was just in a different space that allowed, you know, like, oh, yeah. You can't get an FM radio on an AM dial. Right. Right. So it was right. like, oh, I just, I changed my dial and now it's here. I mean, cause it's really, it really is. I think, I really believe it is that simple and we just fuck it up. Like there's a ton of radio stations right now, but since we don't have radio, Joe, there, we don't hear people talking, but the truth is there's people talking all around us. We just don't hear them. Right. right? That's the nature of reality. So it's kind of like, well, what else can't we see that's happening in the universe? We know radio's happening. We know TV waves are going through the air, right? right? We know the earth is spinning at dizzying speeds right now, but we're, we, we don't notice it. Right, right. If you don't have your phone, you don't know Wi-Fi exists. Right, it's all there. So, so I think, you know, so I feel like, well, I think that opened up this place of doing nightclubs, which was this weird thing that like I certainly did not choose yeah. to do it but it was like we were on the right night with the right set of circumstances with no competition parking everything was like a perfect storm yeah like all of those things for that first night that we did worked right and that's where I feel like that's a true outlier story because it was like the right place right circumstance right set of things happened like and it worked right and there were so many things that could have, you know, now that I know, there's so many things that could have, we could have, you know, it was like, how do we not make all those mistakes? So what mistakes in your 20s did you make? Is that where we're kind of going? Is that, did things stay that way? Oh, I thought we were talking about the one-handed kettlebell. <laughs> yeah, the one-handed kettlebell. No, um, yeah, so I I did that. So for the my early career in my life, like, it was like, I just had one success after another. It was right. really pretty remarkable, like. In my early 20s, and the other part about my story is at 19, I lied to everyone and told them I was 21. Right. Because Of course, you had to. You had to. Yeah. Not really, but I did. Yeah. So I was always older than I really was by a couple of years. And, and then your 21st birthday, everyone's looking around like, what? What? <laughs> what happened? Your yeah. dad's psyched you're not cutting hair. Well, no, my dad, now he's even more confused because he's like, what are you doing? Right. Uh, when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> Right. Dads of that generation, right? Right. If you're not, yeah, if yeah. you're not turning screws. Well, something like, he, you know, explain to my dad, like, yeah, I do this party and like, for, you know, people show up. It sounds like ridiculous. It like sounds, I'm throwing parties in Hollywood, dad. It sounds crazy. 
and you've been sober for two years or whatever the number is. What are you yeah. doing? You're selling alcohol? Wait, are you sure yeah. that's a good idea? At 19? <laughs> at 19, yeah. Two years sober. Yeah. I guess 30, 30 plus years later, they're like, well, maybe it's not such a bad deal. It worked. It worked. Um, yeah. So, so I do all of that and – I, you know, and what I did early in my career, which is interesting, and we can move on to a different topic because it'll get boring for your audience because they don't care about my career, is I just sort of promoted different nights a week. So I, that's what I did that was pretty special was I did a Monday, a Wednesday, a Thursday, and like a Saturday. So we kind of cornered the market on nightlife in young Hollywood for like a couple decades, right? But in there, I was doing that, and then I went and opened like my first restaurant. And at that moment, I was about 10 years sober and this is where I wish I had an MBA because I put together like a PPM, I raised money with investors and I signed a lease and um, I got myself into some trouble. Just financial stuff? So... The building was not a restaurant and I was converting an office building into a restaurant and I had to get all that, do all that permitting, that and, permitting and all that expediting. And um, what happened um, was the city of West Hollywood at the time was sort of outsourced for their building and safety department, which a lot of small towns do. They sort of outsourced to like an architectural firm will be the, the architect of record for the city. Sure. And so we were working with an, uh, this firm and then, and they were sort of like, oh yeah, this thing they want you to do for along the whole length of the building, like I know the code says this, but the building that that's close to your property line is really eight feet away from their property line. So it's actually, you're, you're, you're well in the safe zone. It's not going to be a big issue. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we didn't pursue that. But in the time that we're doing it, the city went from an outside source to an in-house architectural firm. So you now have a new guy who's like the head of building and safety and the head architect for the city who's like, oh no, we're doing it by the book. Yeah. So it was like, oh no. So we fought the city and lost. And in that time we had, we ended up starting having to pay rent. Right. Things ran behind. Um, and, you know, I was going to lose the business and this is where I was. Like, and at that time I had stopped going to meetings. I had stopped having kind of a spiritual life necessarily i stopped sort of you were out of the woods i was out of the woods and i made a decision to borrow some money to keep this business open from some loan sharks got it like italian loan sharks oh man yeah and go, go on <laughs> <laughs> joe joe just got a boner you, you know my last name i'm I'm interested now. <laughs> so, and, you know, there's this thing called the juice. Mm -hmm. The juice is running. The juice. It's due so every week. I had to pay the juice every week. And so I was also running another bar in Hollywood that was really hot and great and rocking. And that bar, um, I... When they wanted to do the remodel, at the time, I had a bunch of clubs. I had so much cash. Like, there was a moment in my life when I was, like, leaving places with trash bags full of money. It was crazy. It was, like, oh. this crazy time. And so <laughs> I paid for the remodel of this bar. Well, you pay off the load sharks with that. Well, no, no, those bags that, of money. That, that was an older time. This is a new time. So I, so we remodeled this bar called the Opium Den, and I um, 
do that and get it open. It's great. And then I pay myself back because I loaned the, the construction for the construction money and loaned it. And then, you know, some years later, whatever, I was like having this problem with this restaurant. And so I had to pay the juice. And so I started borrowing money from the bar I was running, recording it in the books, um, keeping it on the balance sheet, but not keeping it in the P&L and not telling my partners. And so I, f I ran myself into some problems. Yeah. And so, and I was living in this crazy shadow world of like, you know, just survival. Like, yeah. it was, uh, like I was suicidal. I was crazy. I was alone. I was like having to pay these guys money every week, you know, and they were like, if you didn't make the payment, they took your car. Right. You, know, you don't want to mess with Or you're going to go to work for them. Like, it yeah. was like a real, you know, people think it's like kitty stuff. It's not kitty stuff. It was like real deal. Like, why don't you go to a bank? Uh, this is where the NBA comes in, Joe. <laughs> they didn't teach that's me about banking the Joshua Tree. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, I was just like, what I was sort of, and so, because this, this is a long story to get to that point of, like you said, like learning that, but it was really like, I didn't know, I, I didn't know it was okay to fail. Like, I didn't know, like letting that business fail, like keeping that business going and my life. And would, taking money all over the place. And, and doing that was like, I had to get it open. It was more like my ego was like, I had to get it open. Right. And was that a sense of responsibility for your investors? For the investors, I think just my pride of ego in the community. So I'm I'm going all through that. So it kind of gets to the point where the money I've borrowed from this bar is a decent chunk of change, and I start feeling pretty guilty about it. And so I tell the partners of that bar, and they go crazy as yeah, they would. As as you do, I don't blame them. And so I um I uh you know and and they ended up like suing me and even though they, they didn't really have to, but they did, but we made a deal and, you know, I, I paid them back the money. I paid them restitution. I paid them interest on all of it. You know, I think some of, you know, and I'm friends with some of those people to this day and, you know, made amends for that behavior. Um, and, um, but at the, at the end of the day, it was like, I was just, I couldn't let the thing fail. Right. Like I just, I couldn't let it fail at any cost was like, I have to keep, I got to get it open. Goal Odyssey. Yeah. And so I learned, and I'm so happy that I learned that lesson in my 20s, like I'm, that I'm not learning that lesson today with like Alex and my son and, you know, because you learn lessons when you learn lessons. Right. There's no, you know what I mean? But it was always one of those things. But as I was in it, it was just this crazy, dark, insane time. And then what made it worse was, there was like an article in Los Angeles magazine, just like a tell all of like, you know, me, this whole story. Yeah. So it was a public humiliation on top of this crazy thing. So it was this really intense lesson that I learned in my twenties of just how to walk through public shame and humiliation because at that time there's no internet. I mean, there was, but it was a baby. And like Los Angeles Magazine and LA Times were like the Bible. And so Los Angeles Magazine had a huge story about me like and this lawsuit and this whole thing with this money. They didn't know. And, and at the time I couldn't talk about, I didn't, I, you don't really talk about the guys you borrow money from when you owe them money. And you don't talk about it to the 
press or to friends. You don't right. talk you don't to want to any, tell the Italian. You guy. don't tell anybody anything, right? So, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, I took that money. Yep. What? What? Why'd you take it? Well, I just, I just took it. <laughs> <laughs> See this jacket? No, it wasn't even like that. It wasn't even for a jacket or anything. It was literally like they would take it and it would go right to the to the fucking juice. But at the end of the day, it was like I, I you know, it, it. So where did you get the money to pay the lawsuit if the juice is already running over here? So what happened was I got the restaurant opened. Oh, you did? I did get the restaurant open. It was called The Coffee House. It was on Sunset Boulevard across from the Chateau Marmont. It was really fun. It was an amazing place. It never really made any money because I think we started so far to the left. Yeah. But it was a really, really super fun place. And people that uh, of that age and that time were like, that was one of the greatest places ever. Like, you know, I mean, there has been so many TV shows that were made it to air that writers come up to me to this day and go, oh, I wrote that TV show at, at – the coffee house, you know, like when sex in the city came to LA and filmed, like they filmed in the coffee house. Like it was like, Holy it smokes. had to be in the show. So it was like, a, it was like, that was the thing. So it was a thing. So that was sort of the redeeming thing. But in that story, like there was a writer doing a story about the coffee house if it would ever open and they were interviewing me. And then the last question was like, um, what about the lawsuit with the opium den? And I was like, Oh, that's what this is about. Come to find out, he's doing like a story about that, not about the coffee house. And I was like, what do you want to know? Yeah. I was like, I'll tell you anything. I made some horrible mistakes. I made some poor decisions. I did wrong by my partners, but I'm going to do everything I can to make it right. I feel like Francis Ford Coppola in a, you know, Hearts of Darkness, everything has gone wrong this last year and a half. But I'm going to do what I can to make it right. Yep. And that's how the story ended. And like years later... And that was me being really sincerely saying that. Like I I was not trying to like steal money from my partners to go to the Bahamas with some hot girl. I was like there was a situation happening that I couldn't make public, but I was going to – I wasn't trying to like – And my guess is you didn't tell your partners about the juice no, because no, that no, would have no. unraveled. No, yeah. No, that didn't – You wouldn't be here. No. <laughs> you know, so that didn't happen and so – you know, it just was this situation. And so I just, um, and that story came out and it was, I, th like something happened. Like I had that story come out. I saw, when they asked me about the problem, I was pretty humble about it at that moment in time. And, um, in that interview and then that story broke on like a f Thursday. It seemed like that's when stuff came out. Yeah. It's like on a Thursday. And then like on that Friday, this is how God works in my life because you asked about God. You're going to hear a lot about him. Cool. I get asked to speak at an AA meeting um, on Monday night, which is like the biggest, hippest, coolest, grooviest AA meeting with 300 people in it on Monday nights. Because you had to have 10 years to speak there and I had 10 years. So they were, I was like, oh my God. Like yeah. it was a disaster. Yeah. It's the worst day of my life. The story breaks in the press. <laughs> so, and I'm literally asked to speak at a meeting. Because of the press? No. Had no. nothing to do with the press. Oh, okay. Just I didn't know if it was like any publicity is good publicity. No, you know, no, no. no. Just somebody up. was like, hey, hey, it's Mike. Yeah, hey, what are you doing Monday? Can you speak at the meeting? And and like, yeah, just don't pick up the paper until <laughs> Tuesday. <laughs> but the beautiful part about it was is so I went and I got to sort of 
come clean about it all in that meeting about what I was doing and the way I was behaving in business, which was completely inappropriate. And I'm crying at the podium and that's a really a moving thing, but it was like one of those moments where it was like, wow, you know, and then the beautiful thing about like 12 step programs are like, it's the greatest room full of love because they're like, we don't care. Come on. We hug everyone hugs. Like, it's okay, dude. Don't worry about it. Um, you did that. Oh, let me tell you about my shit. I did. Right. There's always somebody who's done something a hundred times worse than you and they just don't care. Right. There's no judgment in general in that, those spaces. Like they're like, did you get, did you drink? No. Great. Everything's okay. How did you, I was going to say, how did you stay out of that world? So you mentioned your suicidal. I certainly had suicidal thoughts for sure. But like. How did that. Like I said, the obsession to drink and use was lifted in that early age. So I just, that was never, that's never been a place where I'm like, I'm going to go do that. That's never been an option. It's never been there. I think a a lot of people. Which is a blessing. It's a total, I know a lot of people struggle with that and that's not their reality. And. I have so much compassion for that because I know that is a very, very real thing. Like, and I don't know why it was taken from me and I'm not going to ask, I'm not going to question it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just happy that, I'm just happy that it was. So, um, and then, you know, somewhere around that time is when I met George. Got it. So like really like at that moment at 10 years sober, I did, I had a 180. Yeah. Back into the program, back on my spiritual path back on my journey, you know, back being of service, you know, and I've never, never not been there since that day Yeah. to this day. Like, um, that's my life. And, you know, that place got open. Um, you know, I've had, mo- I've had other moments where I had to get checked, which is always really hard when God checks you. It's a really fucking painful move. I suggest nobody lets that happen. Um, How did God check you? Another back surgery. Another back surgery. Yeah. Man. Like 20 years later. You were starting to enjoy life too much. Yeah. Had to ratchet you back. Yeah. Kind of how it goes. So, you know, so the place gets open, you know, and. If it was fun and cool and sex in the cities there, how is it not successful as a business? I'm just not great at running restaurants. Yeah. It's not my, it's, I'm not good at that. Right. And I'm not. And so at that moment in time, I got myself a business manager from that moment. One of the, my, one of my investors, um, his business manager, he was like, told you you didn't know how to run a restaurant. He's just, <laughs> he's just like, I'm going to be your business manager. Well, this is never going to happen to you again. Yeah. Basically what he said. And he's still my business manager to this day and my accountant and my friend. Um, he's amazing. So I just sort of was like, great. And that was one of the ways I kept my side of the street clean, right? I was not appropriate with people's money. So now I don't touch people's money. So like I don't touch the account like in my businesses today. I don't write checks. I don't sign checks. And I don't run the P&L. There's accountants that do that. So if something goes weird, I'm not – it's not at my hand, right? So – and I felt like that's the responsible thing to do because I, I didn't – I hadn't earned the right to do that, right? So I've always kind of kept an arm's distance from there just because of that thing I did in my 20s. Yeah. You know? It seems like when you learn a lesson, you really learn it. So in other words, yeah. you know, once you get burned, you don't touch the stove again. And it's, yeah, you have to. I right. think, I mean, I hope, I hope right. that's what happens. I mean, you should, I think that's what's supposed to happen. 
Hey guys, sorry to interrupt. I got one more Black Friday deal for you. And it's from my friends over at Essentia. Now, this mattress has been life-changing. I think so many people, they want to take all the supplements. They want to know how to you know, optimize and perform better and recover better. But many of us are sleeping on mattresses that are slowly killing us and impairing our ability to get into truly deep sleep. There is absolutely no better investment. We could all probably throw out all of our supplements, all of the stuff that we're using for biohacking and just get a new mattress. And it would probably do more for our performance and our health than all of that other stuff put together. So this Black Friday, you're going to save 25% off everything at Essentia Mattress. Plus, you're going to receive two free cloud pillows with a mattress purchase that are amazing. That's what we have. All you got to do is head to myessentia.com slash stacked. And that discount is going to be automatically applied to your new mattress. So check them out. Back to the show. I don't think it happens for a lot of people that way, though. I think they think they'll change or they think they learn their lesson, especially in business, like outsourcing the elements that aren't for you or that you don't feel confident in. I think a lot of business owners, entrepreneurs, people that are that are listening to the show, I think that that's a, an incredibly valuable lesson. I know in my own business, it's when, I, when we outsourced some of the business development, it was a game changer because now I'm freed up. And I think your product ultimately is fun. You mentioned it a minute ago. Yeah. And you said the coffee house was fun. And I think that that's a word that you might have an interesting definition for because I think it is a theme. I think you've you're kind of, when you create a community and experience, a bar or restaurant, I think you get that. Yeah, I think, you know, let, I mean, it wasn't until I read Outliers that I was like, oh, yeah, I'm one of those guys. Yeah. Like, it's weird, but it's weird. And I don't say that with an ego. I just say that, like, yeah, like, I was this weird kid who grew up around Southern California, always moving because my dad had a business that always moved to different places. We landed in Joshua Tree. So I was always making new friends. So I knew how to make friends easily, but I knew now not to get too close to people, which in Hollywood is perfect. (laughs) (laughs) You know? So I always had these weird boundaries with certain people and like, you know, people like weren't famous, became famous that were in our world. Like it just happened a lot. More than, more than a lot happened all the time. So that became part of what we did for so long was like really taking care of young Hollywood and it really became this thing where it was like, yeah, well, if I knew you when you weren't famous and we treated you cool and you were just treated like a human, let's just say, and then you win an Oscar, you kind of remember those people that were like, you were always really cool to me. Yeah. Like even before all this stuff, like I like that about you. It's like, yeah, well, we just kind of tried to be, you know, I did have that conscious thing when I got into the nightclub space and being a nightclub promoter, like I kind of did have a conscious of like, I want to add, give it some integrity. Forget what I did was horrible, but it wasn't done. It was what it was done out of circumstance more than just like, Oh, I'm a, I'm a scumbag guy trying to do scumbag things. You weren't buying Lambos and shit like that. So I was always like, I wanted to, I wanted nightclub promoting to have some kind of integrity. I felt like, you know, because being sober and learning all that stuff when you get young, it's like that's ingrained in you. Like you want to do the right thing kind of. And so that was always important to me, you know, that like I did things. Um, And that was another thing like that article in Los Angeles Magazine. Like 
everyone that they kind of interviewed and they tracked down a bunch of big powerful people in town. A lot of people were like, I don't know what's going on, but that sounds really not like that guy. Yeah. It doesn't sound like his character. It doesn't really sound like that's in his DNA. You know, Rick Rubin said some really nice things, you know, and they tried to get him to say some bad things. You know what I mean? It was just kind of like people were like, that doesn't make sense. But we don't know what's going on, but that doesn't, that story's not, two plus two is not equaling four right now. Right. And it wasn't because no one had the full picture, mm-hmm. right? And I think there's that awesome story that Tony Robbins tells um, that I always use of, I think it's Tony Robbins. If it's not, then someone will correct me. Um, but it's the story of he gets on a bus, he gets on a train in New York and there's a guy across the way. He's got three kids and they're going crazy. And the kids are like all over the place. And it's just like annoying. Like kids can be annoying out of a place and they're just like there and like, you know, and the dad, you know, and, and like, He's just kind of getting agitated by the kids. Agitated, agitated by the kids or agitating me. Control your kids. What's wrong with this guy? He's a fucking control your kids, man. You're talking in your inner voice and you're like, just, I can't even take, you know, come on, man up. Right. And then the the dad kind of looks up and just goes, wow, I'm I'm really sorry about my kids. Um, Their mom just died and I don't know what to do. Right. Because we've all been in that scenario where you're like, you just don't know. Yeah. So I've always had that in the back of my brain because I was that guy. Mm-hmm. You know, like you were just like, oh, yeah, you don't really know what's going on. So you kind of got to remember you don't know the whole story unless you know the whole story. Right. And listen, the whole story could be like, that dude's bad and he's doing bad things. Great. That's the story. But it could be like, that's not the full story. You don't really know. So I've always sort of lived with that in my brain when I look at people in situations like, well, what else? What happened that day to that human? You know, because we can get, we can go sideways so easy, you know? Like I remember, I remember being at that gas station pumping gas for people and some people were really great. And some of those people are still my friends to this day. And some people were real assholes. And I remember those first few years when I was doing nightclubs in Hollywood, I would see those assholes. I would go. <laughs> karma and that guy didn't know right right he but was, i sat there and said and i knew i was young enough i was smart enough to go like well that's crazy like last week last year i was pumping gas in sherman oaks and this year i'm running the nightclub where the beastie boys are djing and robert downey jr is in line i don't know shit anything can happen yeah. when you learn that you remember that because i was like Anything's possible in this town, in this world. You don't know who's going to do what. You really, really don't know. Yeah. You know, so I've always carried that with me too. That's amazing. Be careful because it's like you think that guy is not anything. Pumping your gas. Well, yeah, and that's the other thing. Like I seen, like I remember, you know, so many people in my life were just like, like, you know, Back in the day, we used to like stuff flyers and envelopes and do like physical mailers because there was no internet. There's so many kids that would come to our house for a pizza party on a Friday stuff envelopes that were like, dude, did you just win a Grammy? Oh, yeah. Scott Weiland just won a Grammy and he was stuffing envelopes with us last year. <laughs> Welcome to Hollywood. Welcome to Hollywood. 
Really? Like, that's a real story. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you're just kind of like, you see that time and time again, you start realizing, well, at least in this town, people can, things can shift pretty fast, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, Cameron Diaz was my friend's girlfriend, and then she was in the mask. What happened? Yeah. Like, overnight. And you've you had, know? I mean, just in the time I've known you, I mean, just the other night, you posted The Who playing in someone's backyard. That was pretty crazy. Like, that's absurd, you know? So what are some other, like, ridiculous stories or the most notable maybe story or two that you've had over the past 30 years in Hollywood? Oh, my God. There's so many stories. The Who playing in the backyard on it. That's just your Instagram feed. It's just, that was ridiculous. I mean, that was, I mean, listen, that was crazy. It was like, it was a fundraiser for teen cancer and for autism that Roger Daltrey kind of quarterbacks that. Okay. So, I mean, that's why that kind of happened that way. I imagine Roger Daltrey calls you, take the call. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, uh, there's just some stories I tell and some stories I never tell because I respect people's privacy. Um, But one of the best stories is, um, and this is kind of before like the coffee house and all that stuff. So this is at a time when I am like the press would say, Oh, the King of Hollywood nightlife. Like this is what I was reading. Right. Right. So, and I'm sure part of my ego was like, yes, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm so, and at that time I had like, I had a club on a Monday, a Thursday and a Saturday. Those we had these three clubs. We had, they were only open one night a week. Yeah, we Gaslight on Monday nights was like this little rock and roll club. We did Thursday nights at Roxbury, which was like Roxbury was a big club. And then the, the movie Night at the Roxbury night was was made about night at about made about the Roxbury, right? And Thursday was the you big owned night. the Roxbury. I did Thursday nights at the Roxbury. I didn't own it, but <laughs> my friends did. Oh, you threw the party. Okay, but I threw the hottest thing at that at the Roxbury. Like everything that made that place work was because of the night that we did. And then we did this this big disco club called Saturday Night Fever, Got which it. was trash bags full of money and um so that's just like a normal week that's what we're doing every week right and i get a call from rick rubin puts on mick jagger and he says hey we're in the studio we're about to finish the record and we won't have a party it's um friday night but we won't have it we won't have the party in one week in in a house in the hollywood hills can we do it and me and Rick were pretty good friends at that time. I was like, yeah, of course, got it. I'll, I'll get you a couple houses in the next couple of days. We'll make it happen. Click. I'm like, oh, what the fuck am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> so I literally start, I'm like cold sweating. And I'm like, okay, I have to go find a house to do this party. Because at the time, Mick Jagger was in LA recording a record with Rick Rubin, um, one of his solo records. So I go out Friday, I go out Saturday, I go out, and I even go out on like a Sunday night to whatever club was happening on a Sunday night. You know, I'm desperate. And I run into a girl that I know and I just start telling people, hey, I need a house to do a party for some people. I don't tell people who it's for. Yeah. She goes, oh, maybe. I mean, I, mean, I have a, we live in a great house as a view and parking and I don't know, I can ask my roommate. I was like, really? It's like, amazing. Let's do it. So I call her on Monday and she's like, okay. And and she's Peter Sellers' daughter. Okay. And 
She says she talked to her roommate. Her roommate said, cool, let's do it. I'm like, really? She's like, yeah, yeah. I was like, okay. I call Rick Rubin. Him and Mick Jagger come up. They look at the house and say, it's perfect. This is on Monday. I'm like, great, done. We got a house. The party's Friday. We got, we have a, it's amazing. <laughs> Nothing but time. Nothing but time. But that week in Los Angeles was this big gala that AIDS Project Los Angeles throws. And there was a big fashion show downtown with Jean-Paul Gaultier. And it was the show where Madonna walked in and she went down the runway topless. Got Just to put it in context. People it. know that story. If you're yeah. old enough, you'll remember that. Yeah. Like It was a big deal. She yeah. was like... She had great boobs. Yeah. She was walking down the front way with them. So that we, that's what that week was. And I was involved in that. <laughs> I was involved in doing like some kind of a party on a Wednesday before. So there's a lot going on. And then I was doing a party for Mick Jagger on that Friday. So we really didn't get into doing that party until Friday. <laughs> it's a busy week. It's a busy week. <sighs> High school dropout, no diploma from the desert. Keep it in perspective. But you know people. I have no the fuck what I'm doing. It was a crazy. So we're sitting there and I'm doing, we're, we get up there and I get everyone up there. We're setting up the place and we're doing it and like getting the party ready. What do you and, do to set up for a party for Mick you know, Jagger? Can you get furniture out? You bring in some other furniture, take their furniture, put it on a truck. The people's have, like this furniture oh, so that you own would go away and we bring in rental furniture. And I start looking around the party and I'm like, oh, there's a bunch of girls here. Bunch of topless girls here, kind of hot. This is weird. My crew guys, I'm like, get to work. Stay focused, boys. Stay focused. Right. I see my friend Victoria. He's like, oh, come meet my roommate. So we go in the house. She goes, come back. And she comes into the house and she introduces me to her roommate. She goes, this is my friend Heidi. And I'm like, oh my God, it's Heidi Fleiss. This is Heidi Fleiss's house. She's the biggest madam in Hollywood. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god! Oh my god! Do I? What do I do? Yeah. Oh my god! The party's tonight. <laughs> do I call Rick? Do I tell Rick? Rick's not gonna care. He's cool. What? Do I, what? Oh my god! And granted, at that time, Heidi Fleiss wasn't in the tabloids. She wasn't a household name. She was just a girl in Hollywood that we knew who she was. We knew what she did, and if you lived in Hollywood, you knew what she did. So we end up doing the party. And it's insane. Everybody is there. Johnny Depp's DJing. The Red Hot Chili Peppers are like scaling the back wall, coming over the back fence because they can't get in at the front. Prince is getting rejected at the front door. <laughs> Al Pacino and Jack Nicholson are surrounded by girls. I don't know what kind of girls they were. There's a lot of girls. There's a lot of girls. It's a good night. Heidi made a, had a good night, I'm sure. And so it was just one of these legendary, crazy Hollywood nights, like the Eagles. It's like an Eagle song. Yeah. Like that that actually happened that way. So someone said the Red Hot Chili Peppers couldn't come in? No, I just think it was just crazy and they couldn't yeah. get in. So they just, they scaled the back wall. I mean, they were, fr like I've known, I mean, we all kind of, we all, you know, like you kind of know everybody from around town. So yeah. they, it's not like we would have turned them away. I just think it was like, yeah, that was probably the fastest. Line. Probably the fastest way to get in. Yeah. Holy smokes! You know, but the irony of that story is, is that years later, Heidi Fleiss writes a tell-all book, or somebody writes a book about Heidi Fleiss, and they talk about that party as her coming out in Hollywood party, in the book, and her like autobiography. And I was like, and they talk about 
Prince walking up and the mysterious dark-haired girl at the front door checking people in and Heidi's big coming out party to Hollywood. I was like, what? That dark-haired girl's Jennifer, my partner. Yeah. That party happened at her house by fucking accident. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, no. so she took credit for your party. She tried to. She's. She, we won't let her. But it was just like this. It was just one of those things. So that it's like that. So Mick was stoked. Yeah, everyone had a great time. He booked you the next time he came into Hollywood. I don't. I don't even think he knows who I am. But at the end of the day, it was like you know, it was a good party. Like it, was, it was a legendary, legendary party. Um, but that's a good one. Yeah, that's a damn good one. It's a really good one. Yeah, those are those are some of those. You know, those are those are typical days in Hollywood, I suppose. So now you're growing the bungalow. So your latest project is the bungalow. It's in Santa Monica. You said you have something like 500,000 people in there each year or something crazy. Something like that. Yeah, we do. Something, I mean, like it's one of the busiest bars in Southern California for yeah. sure. Like we do three or 400,000, yeah. four or 500,000 people through the doors a year. That's we have for like the last eight years. It's been really remarkable. Yeah. Super amazing. Um, so you're not in the crazy party business anymore. No, you know, um, I've done it. You know, I've had a crazy career up. I partnered with this company SBE for a few years, left that company because we just didn't see eye to eye on the way things were in the world. And, you know, again, like I said, I always have this theme of like when you get out of your own way and you kind of let go and let God, that's how the bungalow came. Like I knew um, I was doing some work with, with, with my therapist and we were sort of like thinking about what are we going to do? Like, cause I saw Hollywood nightclubs, like, really changing and becoming this thing that was not great. So it was like, I was going to go to TV and film or going to the bar business. Like those were like, this this, is now like probably late nineties. This is like 10 years ago. I was thinking like, I want to get out of nightclub business. It it. seemed, it just didn't seem like, certainly wasn't speaking to me as a human and, but it was what I did. So it was kind of like, um, okay. And so I, um, you know, I wasn't really looking for the bungalow and we just kind of happened out of nowhere. Yeah. I just got out of the way and I was just sort of like, okay. Someone call you and say, we got this little building. Yeah. My Jennifer, my partner ran into somebody that worked for one of the owners of the hotel and said, Hey, we're thinking about doing a bar. She was getting bagels for her, her now husband at Jerry's deli. And she was just talking to a guy like, hey, what do you do? I see you come all the time. And he was like, oh, we work for a real estate company. We own a couple of hotels. And, oh, we have a hotel in Santa Monica. We want to do a bar there. Maybe we should talk to you guys. I was like, hotel? Bar in Santa Monica? Yes. Yeah. And it was just like, you know, we exchanged cards and we emailed. And so many times, you know, like that stuff happens in this town and it just goes into the ether or it's yeah. just some guy full of shit or it's just not a situation that you want to be part of. And so they were like, let's have a meeting. So we, I went to the Santa, I went to the Fairmont and had a meeting in the lobby. And they were like, and I was thinking, and I was driving over there. I was like, whoa, what, there's what, there's nothing cool about the Fairmont. Like, where's the bar in that spot? Like, I, was, I was playing the lobby and the whole space in my brain of like where something could be, but I didn't know. And then, and so then they're like, hey, you want to see the space? So they walked me across the parking lot and into the bungalow, what it is, the bungalow now. And I was like, oh my God, I know exactly what to do here. Yeah. I knew exactly what this should be. I saw it clear as day. And, you know, with our event business we had for many years also, like we could put together sort of a presentation deck pretty fast Mm -hmm. because a lot of clients, 
when you do stuff with like especially like cell phone companies we were doing a lot of stuff for like samsung and t-mobile at the time like they're like hi here's sign the end day great phone's gonna launch next tuesday we need to have a party and we need renderings and we need to get it all approved by by korea can you get it all done in like two days you're like um okay yeah and we have 10 million dollars to do it like money was never an issue it was just but you just had to be able to like produce and so the owners of the hotel were like okay in like 10 days magically all of the owners of this hotel are going to be here having a meeting can you present I was like, yeah. 10 days is more time than it used to, you're used to operating on. Kind of, but I... But it's a totally new concept. You'd always get some sort of teaser and lead up to you. Not, you'd kind of know what something was coming. Like you were kind of prepped. And so like your client would be like, okay, find a location. You can't see anything about the phone. You can't tell what it is. We can't tell you about colors, but you kind of knew something was coming. So you kind of at least could do that. This was like nowhere. So it was like, yeah, we did it really fast. We presented them our idea. Um, they were talking, they had, they had been talking to another group for quite some time. And I think they looked at both proposals and they picked us. It's amazing. And it's a very different, um, vibe. So for those listening, the bungalow, you've got like, it's like, like you've got different rooms and yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's very homey. Yeah. It's supposed you to decorate, be, it was like, supposed to be a very residential concept. Yeah. Right? It's not a, it's not a surf concept necessarily, even though all of our locations tend to be near the water. It's. It's supposed to feel like a great house party. Yeah. You know, that's it, exactly how it feels. You know, and so we have multiple rooms and a lot of places to sit. And, you know, that's, and then, and I really wanted to build something that I could spend a lot of time in that I would enjoy personally. So it has a lot of my own personal stuff in there, like some of my arts in there. And just, I really put a lot of my heart and soul in there because it was like, I wanted it to be like a place. If I just spent a lot of time somewhere and a bar that's open seven days a week, you spend a lot of time. Yeah. So it was like, yeah, let's make something really special. And it, you know, I mean, we thought it would be successful, but not to the, not to this level. Right. You know, super cool. Yeah. So that was like our iron man. Yeah, man. Amazing. Brent, quite the story. Did we leave, leave anything out? I don't know. That was. Have we talked a long time? I don't even know. About an hour and a half. Oh, we got a long time to go. We got a long time to go. An another hour, hour. Lois got an hour two two twenty. That's right, Lois. Well, you know what's funny about Lois, and we'll link to her episode as well if you haven't listened to it. She, you introduced me to Lois, and you know we're shift, for those listening, we're shifting gears majorly right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but Brent, thank you for your story. That was just that was just incredible. Um, with Lois, you know, she talked a lot about her work and and what she does, and um, we went into a lot about birthing. And you've done a lot of work with her. You went down and spent three days with her. I did, yeah, and had all sorts of work done. Can you tell me what that was like, you know, from the, wherever you want to focus, but I think people are, are super interested after listening to that show. So we heard it from her. Let's hear it from somebody that's done it. Well, I mean, I think the, the interesting thing with Lois is, you know, I found Lois because of our, the dentist that we use for our, our new baby. Okay. Right. Uh, Dr. Gila Robbins. And so if you know me, I'm a pretty weird guy who likes to talk about some weird stuff. We can talk about aliens. We can talk about ancient aliens. We can talk about weird health stuff. So I you believe it. in ancient aliens? 100%. And, she texted me something about that the other day. And, um, well, I, 
it depends on what context we're talking about. I think there's, I think there's a, I think Graham Hancock has it correct that we, there's a part of our history that we completely have forgotten or that we just lost the records of and we just don't know what happened 10, 10 to 12,000 years ago. Some event happened on the planet and we're just sort of like, okay. Right. Meteor, earthquake, something happened. Flood. Could be flood. I think he tells it the best when he says things like, okay. Who would survive if a meteor hit LA? Not me and you. Maybe you. Maybe not you. Neil Strauss for sure would live because he's been a survivalist. But if you don't know how to live off the land and survive and forage and know what to eat and know how to eat. So the people that would live and survive in a major worldwide colla you know, colla collapse would be the indigenous people, the people in South America. So if we took those people in South America that have never seen Western civilization, they would talk about weird things flying over the sky and they would have, they would have rumors or have these stories or have this echo effect of some great culture or something magical somewhere far in their proliferary vision. But, and they would be the ones rebuilding civilization. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, there's no other way it could happen. Mm -hmm. So maybe that happened in our distant past. I think that's probably what happened. There was probably an advanced civilization that just got wiped out. And the people that rebuilt the civilization were the the Bedouins and the starting people in the Amazon zero. starting from zero who were But make, why? But like what Because they what know clues, how to live on the planet. They but know what clues do we have that that civilization existed? Do we just think the pyramids are 20,000 years old and not 4,000 years old or I mean go to Egypt it's pretty hard to think like they're certainly different than anything else in Egypt yeah I don't know I've been there it's, I've, I've sat in the king's coffin in the in the grand pyramid like it's pretty weird yeah it's pretty weird that you know everywhere in Egypt on everything they ever did for 6,000 years was like right on everything but in the pyramid they didn't write one thing what why makes no sense not even like graffiti. Right. Like they didn't touch it. Why? I don't know. Seems pretty weird to me. Yeah. Just from like a, you know, I don't know. If you were like a, if we were all a group of like street artists and all we did was street art everywhere and you, you know what I mean? And you came to our house and there was no street art in it or no paint or anything. You'd be like, well, sure. What? What is it about this house? What is it about this house or what, or I don't know. Like, I just feel like well, sort of maybe someone else built it and maybe they didn't build it. I don't know. Got it. Got it. Yeah. <clears throat> well, they say that if, you know, and, and I don't remember the exact timeline, but they said if, you know, we stopped caring for New York City, it would be erased in a very surprisingly short amount of time. Yeah, we don't build things for to last a long time. Right. Whoever built the pyramids built it to last a long time. Right. Right. You want things to last, you build them out of hard rock. Right. Mountains don't disappear. Right. Well, very slowly. I mean, yeah, but I'm saying they, <laughs> they stick around for the Rockies have been around a long time. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So it's like they're not going away anytime soon. So I don't know. Who knows? I mean, okay, we can go down that rabbit hole too. Back to rebirthing with Lois. Back to rebirthing with Lois. So, um, I'm there with Gila. She's working on my son and we're talking and she's just like talking about this amazing experience she has doing this water session with this 
girl in Arizona, this lady in Arizona. Lois is not a girl. Sorry, Lois. No disrespect. And um, I was like, what? Weirdly enough, my osteopath was talking about like the same kind of stuff in San Diego with somebody else. Right. So I was like, oh, I just heard that from two people. I got time, to, time to do it. Pay attention. Yeah. Pay attention. Pay attention. Perk up. So she says, oh, she's coming to do some work with um, – she works, she works out of my office. I was like, oh, sign us up. We're in. Yeah. So me and Alex and the baby go and see Lois for the first time. And she does a bunch of weird stuff. Touches me all over my body and says, where did I touch you? I was like, um, on my hand and my arm and my elbow. She's like, nope. I touched your foot, your knee, and your head. And you go, what? Your eyes are closed, so you can't see where she touches you. But she, she's like... Your whole nervous system's rewired, was wired backwards. <laughs> Let's get you rewired. I'm like, oh my God. And then we just start talking and we go down the rabbit hole of like everything. And so my son was born. Um, his hands were sort of tilted back in right. the womb so that his hands were like, they were like, he, his hypermobile, hand, hypermobile, like double but, jointed, almost like. But they weren't the really double back. jointed. I think yeah. that that's just the way he was in there, so they grew that way. So he, his literal hand, could bend back to the thing, and it was like obviously that's not normal. Back all the way to his arm, <clears throat> totally. Wow. And his umbilical cord was pinched when he came out, and so Lois just had him doing a bunch of stuff. So she's like, "Here's what we're doing: vibrators on his lips, in his mouth, things in his nose, things in his ears, vibrators in his hands, like doing all this stuff with him to get him." To sort of nervous system to perk up all the, the homunculus stuff, stuff to sort of get his system to go, and I was like, "Wow!" And we started, we started seeing him make some pretty big progress um, in that space. And then she just started talking about things that she did, and I was like, "I'm coming to Arizona to do what you did. I yeah. want to do it." So, what kind of progress did you see inside when you say you saw progress? Um, you know, like it's hard to say, but he's really in his body. Like he has this amazing posture. What started it, he was tongue-tied and lip-tied. And Lois was part of the team to, to undo that. Because when a baby's tongue-tied and lip-tied, um, they can't latch really well. And they can they can just do a lot of problems, create a lot of problems. Right. The tongue is such an important part of the system that we forget about. And so that happened. And we just saw him sort of lighten up and like, you know, start doing things and just like his hands started to work better. Like he was doing weird stuff like twitching and then he stopped twitching and like just some of the stuff, maybe it's just what babies do. I've never had yeah. a baby, so I don't know. Babies do all kinds of stuff. You think everything's yeah. crazy. Um, but now that I see him as a year and a half old, like he's really like he grounded. He's in his body. He walks, he's strong and he's really present. Like his eyes, he, he makes a lot of eye contact. really and, present yeah. as a little guy. Like he's, advanced for I think his age and I think I and I think that people like Lois and Kathy Gill who's his osteopath like all of those kind of tools that we're fortunate enough to be able to have like just really helped him and what really always echoed to me with my son and thinking about those like the work I would do with George because George was this amazing Qigong master and he was a scientist um, by profession and um, he had mastered four different arts of Qigong and he was always like, it's get this system out of the way. His whole thing was eat clean, 
maybe eat keto, but really like take care of the body and get it out of the way. Because if the body's hurting or aching or moving or not functioning, you're never going to, because his whole platform was trying to, trying to get you to wake up to your true nature, your true self. And he says, as long as you're rooted in the body, it's hard to wake up. It's really hard. So get the system out of the way. And then we're just one agreement away from waking up. Right. So I always thought about that with my son. I was like, well, you know, my parents loved me. They were awesome parents. They fucked me up. I was a drug addict, you know, not on purpose. You know what I mean? I didn't have like parents that were beating me, but like, obviously there's something that happened that sort of sent me off sideways a little bit. So I was like, what happens if you can take a child, get the system out of the way at a very young age so it's just there, but it's not the driving force. Like the force driving you is the inner you, the, your true nature. And, um, you know, so that's sort of what I've been trying to do with my son is like, how do we get him to be um, there? Whoa, feeling a little nauseous. Oh, yeah, right? I don't know. Well, maybe we should pause. Yeah. Pause. I mean, we can just cut this out. Uh, back at the ranch. Back at the ranch here. So have you ever heard of rye? We've talked about it, I think, a little bit. What is rye again? Rye is uh, respectful infant education, and I think it's educaring. Oh, yeah, yeah. Respectful infant educaring. Right. And essentially, like you said about size movement, it's, you know, it's very much letting these babies progress and develop on their own. Yeah. I've been obsessed with Steiner. I mean, obviously right. he's such a, was such a smart mystic scientist educator. Like he's just such a, you know, yeah, I really love, obviously I love the mystical space and I think uh, there's, you know, anyone who's educating from that perspective, like not forgetting about that part of the universe, right. it's kind of, I think it's important. Like, yeah. You know, like, you know, shamans are real, you know, like, how could it not be? Right. There's just too many stories and things and people like, if you choose not to believe it or you think it's hocus pocus or it's like, fine, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean something's not real. Right. I think that's you know, a, yeah. it's just, it's just a really silly way to, you know, we know that the, the Incans couldn't see the Spanish ships because it was beyond their capabilities. They were like, there's no ships out there. And there was 30 ships out there. Yeah. The only person to see the ships was the shaman. Yeah. Why? I don't know, you know, it's just one of those things. And so is our job to try to see the ships or is ignorance bliss? Um, well, I don't think ignorance, I mean. Ignorance. <laughs> ignorance. <laughs> I mean, I think, I, th I think that it's, you know, I think it's like anything else, right? Like, I always just try to find things that kind of can explain where we are and what's going on. So if you think about, you know, the in, the Hindus talk about Kali Yugas and they talk about periods of time and they're pretty, they get pretty good calendars, right? They're pretty smart. 
Or then you talk about the 12,000 year cycle, you know, that wobble in the earth that gives us a 25 year cycle. Why do they know about that? I don't know, but we just figured it out today and they've been talking about it for thousand, ten thousand years or whatever it is in their records. And, you know, they talk about this time of we're going out of one cycle into another cycle and we're leaving a cycle that was very industrial and we're moving into a more enlightened cycle. So it's interesting to see we're kind of at the bottom of that cycle. And and as we move, you know, and people say it's like the age of Aquarius as we move into this other cycle, which we won't see in our lifetime because, it's you know, these cycles are thousands of years old. But right. as you kind of make your way through that cycle, let's hope Let's hope, right, for all of your listeners that are probably a little bit more evolved and a little more want the planet to be better. Like, let's hope that the Hindus have it right and that we're moving into more an age of enlightenment because then we're moving towards the light. Yeah. So it, it it's all going to figure itself out because we can figure it out because we've come out of this dark industrial time that they talked about. Yeah. And you can see that. That's sort of like, and if you think about the last time the earth seemed to be a bit more spiritually evolved, just, you know, the Incans, the Egyptians, and, you know, that that new book by Malcolm Gladwell where he talks about Cortez and the, the Incan king, mm. and they just talk about how the Spanish were just blown away by, like, how clean the streets were in those giant cities in the Incan times and how beautiful and there was gold and it was just spotless and they had running water and like things they didn't see in medieval yeah. Europe. Yeah. It was a sewer. Yeah. Like, you know, right. the Black Plague was killing everybody. People were living with pigs. It was disgusting unless you were the king. And yeah. then you go to South America and to the Incans and you're like, there's a city with five million people in it and it's fucking perfect and there's no trash on the street. Yeah. Like, Clearly, there was a different energy happening. 100%. (laughs) Right. You know, and if anyone has ever been to South America, you can realize that that spider the size of your foot can kill you and that snake and that plant or that berry or that mushroom. Uh, You know, there's there's 10,000 things that can kill you in the jungle in South America. And they can still erect a city. Yeah. And everyone didn't die. Right. I don't know. They knew something that we don't know. Right. Because if we tried to go build a city now in the middle of that jungle, right, where they had cities, I don't even know if we could do it. I'm sure we could, but I don't. I don't know if we could do. I don't even know if we really could do it. You know, one thing about Machu Picchu, you think we could actually get there and build that through that through that valley up that hill into that thing, and sort of not have it fall apart in. 60 years. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. So then how do we meander here? I mean, in this energy, this shift in consciousness, this new time is, you know, this is big in the Kundalini community right now. This is big in a lot of these circles. And I think that, you know, a lot of people's answer is, you know, more meditation or more expectation for uh, energetic changes or feelings or vibrations and so how do we how do we prepare for this? In other words, so how do we contribute to this kind of advancement? I mean, always what George taught us. There was like a small group of people in this community with George, and you can link to his website. I have a right. bunch of his videos up on Vimeo. I recorded him speaking at my house every Sunday for many years. Um, you know, he was always like, 
Get out of wanting. Yeah. Get into gratitude. Right. If you want the earth to change, you're in wanting. Lowest chakra. Lowest chakra. doesn't matter what, even if you have good intentions, it's still wanting. Joe, I want the best for you. It's it's still, there's still only so much energy I can give you having good intentions for you by wanting you to have a good day. Right. You know, being grateful that you're alive, I give you more energy. I mean, it is kind of that, that. That's the beautiful part about like Eastern philosophy, right? It's so simple. Right. In some ways and so complex in others, but there's that. It's, it's simple doesn't mean easy. No, it's black, <laughs> and it's black and white, right? It's very black and white. Right. So back to your rebirthing. Let's, let's dial back and, and oh, yeah. cover Lois here. So you go to Arizona or you have the session in California first. Yeah, and then I make my way. I go to Arizona and do like, I don't know if it was even three days. Maybe it was just two days. I don't know. Maybe it was three days. I don't remember. Um, but you just do a bunch of different stuff with her. And, and I learned more from Lois on your podcast because rarely you just, like, you get moments to talk to her, but she doesn't. She's doing her thing. She's, she's doing her thing. She's not breaking down, like, the history of why she's doing things. Or, tapping your knee and you think she's tapping your forearm. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I've been pretty healthy for a long time. So I've done a lot of things. Um, and I've yet to do anything like that where you just go do something and you're just like, oh, like it's an enlightened experience, you know, because I think if you're relatively healthy and you're in homeostasis sometimes, like you don't have this big shift. Like if you're really sick and you're eating sugar and you're eating junk and then you stop and you get on a good diet and you exercise, you go, my God, I feel so much better than I did three weeks ago. Right. You're like, whoa, it's really different because it is really different. But if you're relatively been healthy for like a pretty long time, mm-hmm. there's not a big spike right. of that. It's more like yeah. subtle changes. And so that's where I'm at in my life. It's like doing these subtle things with like Lois and like I just did some stem cell stuff and it's like just doing things that like subtly get you into that space of like the 1%, the 1%. Just, yeah. How do you yeah. get the system out of the way? Like I, I don't want to be 80 and be old and achy and be like, oh, stuck in my body, grumping and groaning and can't move right because I've had a couple of back surgeries and I know that sucks. Yeah. Right. So, so you get like, the stem cells in your back? I just did some stem cells in my back. Um because I have disc problems and yeah. I see if it'll help my disc stay strong for longer. Right, right. Quit the surgeries. Yeah, sometimes surgery is a necessity, but yeah. it's not always the best. Right. It's really painful. Right, right. <laughs> so how was that experience? Was it painful? I know it's. I get a lot of questions about stem cells because now it's anyone that has an injury. They're, they're wondering if that's what they should do. So I like went to Seattle Stem Cell Center and did it up there. Okay. Um, with Dr. Tammy. She's amazing. And I put her together with Lois because I think they'll love each other. And, you know, it wasn't painful. Mm. I mean, they'd numb you up and they'd do some stuff. And, yeah, there's a little bit of pain afterwards, but nothing nothing crazy. I didn't have anything that was really crazy. Yeah. Um, and then just two days ago, I went and saw, like, the elbow. I have tennis elbow right now, so that was another reason why I went I went up there to do it, and yeah. I went and saw the guy who does like he's like the Clippers guy. Does all the basketball players? He's like, oh, you got stem cell. Good yeah. job. Good move. That's what we're doing. Now we're giving that. This day. LA Sport and Spine. It's a Caleb Job. Okay. So am I saying it right? I don't know. It's like a 
one of these big plays, all they do is sports stuff. Right. And they do tons of athletes and pro people and they do stuff. But he was like, smart move, great. He goes, We don't know, we don't know exactly how it all works, but we're seeing great results. Yeah. So he was like, Good. Six weeks in, you did that. Best thing you could do, put on the brace, get out of here. Done. <laughs> Done. Holy smokes. You know, and it did listen, my elbow got worse for the first week afterwards, it definitely was because it's you know, it's a, it's a trauma. They they inject it, so yeah. it's like my elbow wasn't like happy that it got injected. Figuring but, it out, but I think it's like okay, how do you do these things that you know continually? You know, I always say oh, I got a young wife and I'm an old guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I well, I think that you know this anti aging thing is is all the rage, and you know everybody wants to either like we where this started, we're we're afraid of death, and I wonder how much the anti-aging thing is more of a, 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 a death denial practice as opposed to a life extension practice, right? We want to think that we're all going to live forever. And well, that's what we were talking about before. I think death is that thing that people don't want to talk about, but like it's, it's the most natural thing in the universe. Right. Stars are dying. Galaxies are dying. We're dying. Plants are dying. You know, like everything's dying. That's just part of the cycle. And that's the thing. Are we really dying? That's the illusion, right? Like, or are we not? Are we just continuing? Are we serving a purpose in this dimension that we happen to be in at the moment? Can can you transcend out of it? Are there ascended masters? Is there an Akashic records? I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know. Right. But sure. Why why wouldn't there be? Right. You know? Right. So there's a, you know, so I think that there's both this and it's just, it's, it's all, it's ultimately like, what's your motivation, right? So in other words, like the life extension stuff, the, how do I live forever? I've got a young wife, <laughs> whatever your motivation, whatever your motivation is, is, right? Is, yeah. So as long as it's a healthy relationship and it's not running from something else or do you think that the death with, di is it death with dinner? What's death it? over dinner. Death, o death over dinner. You should get, yeah, you definitely need Michael Hebb on the podcast. Yeah. He's amazing. 100%. Do you think that that, so I imagine you've done this, you've, you've read that book, you've had dinner. Well, we've done some death dinners with Michael. Yeah, he's great. So how has that kind of changed? What impact has that experience had on you? This sort of, we just had Halloween, right? Which means in Mexico, they probably had the memento more right. stuff and it's all about confronting death. We also mentioned in this podcast with it was interesting because one of my favorite writers, his name's Oliver Berkman, and he wrote a book called Happiness for People That Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Hmm. And Sounds a great title. It's an amazing book, but it goes into a lot of the stuff uh, of, from Buddhism or uh, Stoicism, all these things. Um, but when you were talking about getting that restaurant open, I was thinking he talks about uh, Mount Everest climbers and how they get so fixed on the summit that they end up killing themselves. Sure. Right. Because once they're there, they can see the summit. It's right there, but they disregard their turnaround times and they don't abide by the rules and yeah. they don't go up with enough oxygen just because they're so fixated on that goal. Um, and now kind of, kind of coming back into this, he talks a lot about memento more and this kind of how confronting death can be extremely therapeutic and really teach you something about how to live. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, listen, I feel so blessed that I had like George as a teacher because he was a true master. And I think that is really hard for anyone to find a real master, like a real enlightened human being. Um, and there was, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, I was doing ayahuasca. And 
I did it a bunch of times. A bunch of different shamans from South America. In LA or did you go down there? No, I was doing it here in like Topanga or Santa Monica, whatever, just around. And it was some good friends of mine who were doing it. And I was, you know, sponsor new. It was under, it was a spiritual journey. It wasn't something I was trying to escape reality or get high. And I'm sure that's controversial in the sober world, but I don't really care. Um, and um, I did it a bunch of times. And I kind of got to the place where I was like, me and George just started talking about it, right? But he was like, well, here's the deal. Do you know why they? Do you know why the shamans in South America invented ayahuasca? He's like, no. Okay, well, let's start there to get over the fear of dying. So if you're not taking ayahuasca to get over the fear of dying, you're missing the whole point. It's like the first pose of yoga. There's only one pose. There's not three hundred. Right. There's one. Doesn't mean there can't be three hundred. Yeah. But it started with one. Right. So. I was like, and he's like, I'm trying to get you to have a spiritual experience. And no matter how amazing that experience is with ayahuasca or breath work, right? He goes, you're still having a chemical reaction in the physical body. And I'm trying to have you have a spiritual experience outside of the body. Right. And I was like, oh, I've had those. And they are profoundly different than an ayahuasca or Wim Hof breathing. It's totally different. doesn't mean it's not interesting or exciting. But when you have a, a spiritual experience outside of the physical body and you are in a, that different kind of space, it is different. Yeah. It's different. Right. And so I was like, oh, okay. Then I don't need to do that anymore. Right. Okay. I got it. So if I can let go of the fear of dying, so I don't know. I mean, I think about that and I kind of meditate on that and try to let that go because it seems like that's, you know, I mean, I think that's what a lot of spiritual teachers and shamans are doing is trying to prepare you so that when you get there, you're, you're not trend, you're not passing over and holding on to any fear or anything and you can be as pure as possible maybe. I don't know. Who knows what happens there? Um, but not having the death grip yeah. on you, right? which is wanting, not wanting to die is a wanting. Right. So you got to let go of that or you're going to be in low frequency. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's kind of where I was going with the, uh, the ignorance is bliss because I think drugs and uh, whether it's DMT, whether it's ayahuasca, I think there's this sort of, like you said, it is different. And I think, when we think is ignorance bliss, I think a lot of people with the ayahuasca journeys or otherwise, they're, they want to know everything, right? They want to know everything that's out there. That's why they're in the psychedelic space, right? And so when I say is ignorance bliss, in a way I'm saying, like, do we deserve to know? Did we earn the right? And this is what you're saying with George with it's different. And that's why we really try to, I get a lot of questions about these things. It's very big in LA and everywhere. There's books coming out about it. Um, but I think we really try to push people into that different space at least. And if you want to go dabble later, great. But I think there's a certain danger when, when you go from one end of the spectrum to the other, right? You're a little sad. So rather than, you know, taking the George route, you're kind of going <clears> to <throat> go into the, the other route 
and kind of see what's what's but available. I, but I also believe that I think there's something that to be said. Like there's we live in such a time where there's so much information you can find out lots of things. Um I like always knowing like, well why why is that? Right. Why did that happen? Like what was the what you know, there's always this that that stuff about and that's one of my things like I love about history, right? And that's kind of like if you don't know that Jesus was in a scene and lived in an Essene community and sort of practiced that culture, you miss a lot about what he was doing. Like it's a big piece of the puzzle, right? If you don't have the history or ask the questions or figure out what those words meant at that time. And then I think the greatest example of it is if you look at some of the great like, like Zen writers, because if, if, if you look at a Zen writer that was writing about something that was happening and it was during a time of war, you got the book, The Art of War. But if you wrote a, if you look at a Zen writer writing a book about not a warring time, you got like the Tao Te Ching, right? So you have to know what was happening at that time that created that created that thing. And so it gives you that perspective that like that was also what was happening in that time in that place, like. Was that part, you know, like some of the authors of the Bible, like the disciples, some of them, one was a doctor, one was a lawyer, one was a rabbi. Like if you don't know that like, like your perspective as being a health coach is going to be different about the physicality of the way the body functions and moves than the way I'm going to perceive it being a nightclub owner. So I start telling you about that guy's movement and, you're, and I'm telling it to you and you're like, friend, that's cute. Yeah, that's cute. Keep talking about the gate. Right, 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 <laughs> and right. you're just like, and I'm just like, but if I don't, if you're talking and I don't know that you have that history and you're talking and I don't know that about you, I could misinterpret what you're saying because mm -hmm. we can misinterpret things. So it's always, I always feel like we have a responsibility to go back and dig about what is there. So if taking ayahuasca is about, was intended to get over the fear of dying, that's an important piece of information. Mm. Did it do that for you? Well, I didn't get that piece of, piece of information until, <laughs> until after. <laughs> times doing it. But, <laughs> but I just feel like it's an important thing to know that like, oh, that's what that was created. You know, that's what that was created for. That's what they were doing. That's what the shamans were doing when they were doing that in the jungle. They were trying to get over the fear of dying. Right. And There's if super spiritually enlightened people that could sort of smoke tobacco and figure out how to make ayahuasca did all that trouble and took those plants and boiled it down and figured it out and talked to the plant to make that brew. They don't to all that trouble to figure out how not to get over the fear of dying. Pay the fuck up. Pay right. attention. That's a lot of work. And now it's not being used for that. It's being used to get people off heroin whatever yeah. they do use it for but back to machu picchu you know there's a lot of folks that are saying that those things never would have been built without plant medicine without that sort of experience so do you May think maybe. it was also fueling it their ingenuity their no i don't I, I i who knows I, I i don't know who knows i also know that you know you can go back and talk about at the turn of the century, there's, you know, explorers who were talking about Tibetans, like, chanting and watching rocks, 
rise up the side of cliffs and they were building houses on the side of cliffs and they were chanting and rocks were levitating. I don't know if that's true, but there's people that write about it. Maybe it is true. Who you knows? Know? You never know. Right. So, I mean, how things happen, we do know. I mean, I don't remember where I read this, but I read something where once where we know that the atom is pretty close to the speed of light, travel spinning. So we're not that far away from getting there. Right. As we think. Right. Right. We're closer to the speed of light than we think, than we're consciously aware of. Right. If you think about all the molecules and the atoms and the movement that's happening in the body, even though we seem very stationary, we know that there's a lot of movement. So if you could figure out how to take those, that energy and shift it a little faster, what happens? Magic. Do you, do you disappear? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just saying like you, you hear this stuff and you go, okay, well, that doesn't seem crazy to me. Right. That doesn't seem so far-fetched, you know, that some some guy in India could sit in the forest and could get his frequency so high and then suddenly he's not touching the ground anymore? For sure. Go see some Qigong masters do some crazy stuff. They can do some crazy stuff. Well, you talked about George drinking cyanide or... Yeah, he used to do experiments in the lab where he would take poison and drink it and not die well-documented lab stuff because he was a scientist. He was the youngest guy to have a lab at Cal State Long Beach. At the time when he did it, he kind of passed up a free ticket to Harvard to go to Long Beach because he liked the warm weather as opposed to the cold weather. Yeah. And so he was always doing experiments with his body and making himself, his, raising his chi to a point of like, you know. But you hear about these things, like, you know, like you see these Qigong masters doing stuff that's like, you know, that crouching tiger, hidden dragon stuff is not fantasy, right? You know, maybe they weren't jumping over eighteen foot walls, but I, I'm sure there's some Qi Kong master at some time, six hundred years ago, that could probably jump over a ten foot wall, no problem. Yeah, like, and so they were like, oh yeah, that stuff. You know, if you're like a peasant who can't read, is pushing a cart, and some dude jumps over a wall ten feet high, you're like, that dude's got magic powers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right, you know what right. I mean. Like it's, right. or you see that guy like climbing a rope, like like it's nothing. Yeah, I mean, part of that, I th I think part of that is physical strength, but I think part of it is being able to take your energy and make your body lighter. Right, I believe that. You know what I mean. I think the Qigong masters have a way of making themselves lighter. That's why they can walk across a bed of light bulbs, or they can do certain things that we just can't do. Right, I think that there there's a lot. I mean, I think there's a lot there, and I do think that there's a lot of that um, energetic, that energetic piece, um, like you talked about, being stuck in those lower chakras makes you very heavy. You know, your weight is very much kind of dragging you down as opposed to getting that kundalini moving, getting it up, getting it up into the into the head. Into the yeah, I mean, it's just really a matter of like, it's so easy to do it too. It was just like, Get out of wanting, get into gratitude. Yeah. And you shift, boom. And it's you like know? Joe Dispenza, like, you know, a lot of his stuff is based on gratitude. And some of the meditations in his books are just so yeah. simple, but 
they'll put you up into the stratosphere. Well, George always told us to read the Diamond Sutra, which I read all the time. I've been reading it to my son for a long time since he's born. I found an audiobook. I play it for him. But George always said it was one of the most enlightened books because you're, 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 you very rarely you get to witness two masters having a conversation and the energy in which they are operating it in that conversation is super, super high. Yeah. So there's, he's always been like, if you're in a, if you're in a funk, he goes, read that book. It takes, it raises your energy. Right. I've done it a thousand times. It's true. It's amazing. Uh, that's psychosomatic and I just believe it and it happens or if it really happens, but I know there's just a lot of wisdom in that book. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just such a beautiful, simple, you know, book. Well, faith and belief in the book is the most important prerequisite. You know, even if that book was a, you know, it's the treasure map that George said it was, if you didn't have that faith and belief in it upon picking it up, then. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. But like, but he even says like the diamond sutra, he goes, like, yeah, you, at the beginning of it was one sutra. <laughs> I think you read the book, the Buddha's like, no, nah, you guys are already misinterpreting what I'm saying. And I'm right. I'm telling it to you right now. <laughs> That's the greatest thing. It's like, you know, it's like Monty Python has it right. Yeah. In the life yeah. of Brian. It's like, you know, Jesus is talking to the masses and the guys in the two guys in the back are talking. He's like, he just said he wanted to shag your sister. <laughs> Or whatever the joke is, I don't know, something like that. But it's ridiculous, right? But yeah. it's true. It's like you, you know, we have we are a magical race of beings that love to sort of misinterpret things, right? All the time. It's, that's the hardest part is like not misinterpreting. Like, what was the intention there? You know, what was the intention? Like, religions have been built around wrong intention, and or I think misinterpretation, right? Or literal interpretation. Right. Because I think honesty and truth, I think in the context of things like whether it's the Bible or I think they're different. Right. I mean, does God care if you turn on a light switch or you don't turn off a light switch? I don't think God cares. Let's be honest. I don't think. I'm not taking any lunch at anybody, but I think, do you think God really cares? I think when that maybe, and I think that's like anything else, like whatever law, whatever practice was written 10,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, what was happening in that time that sort of made that relevant and what was happening, at least know that. Right. So how does that influence your interpretation of the Bible? I mean, it's hard. The Bible's hard because we don't know really what happened, what really what Constantine did at the Council of Nizon when they all got together and decided to put it all together and what to leave in and what to leave out. So it's really hard. Obviously, there's tons of wisdom there, but we know that there's tons of books that have been left out. Like I have a friend of mine who's an anthropologist. He's writing a book on the Essenes right now. He's seen all of the Dead Sea Scrolls. He says, we've seen only about 20% of them, and the rest are crazy, talking about aliens and angels and levitation and all this crazy stuff. He's like, they're not going to release that to the public because they're holy scriptures. Right. It's the same scripture as as the book of Moses. Is right next to it is another crazy book where they talk about like angelic beings coming down and having babies with people. <laughs> Right? So it's like, it's there, and we kind of get fed what we need. You know, it's fake news is not a new concept. Right. 
it's actually the oldest concept. You know, it's kind of like, you know. So when's his book coming out? I don't know. I keep bugging him to get can it Can he out. even write that book? He can, yeah. He's got the, he's, he's, he's in the space. He's a pretty prolific writer. But I'm just saying that, like, if you sort of, you know, you know, you got to dig and find the truth, right? You just can't believe everything everybody says. I think that's the, I think that's the toughest thing that people do is like you just can't. You got to question things. You don't necessarily have to cause, you know, a riot, right? But you know, shifting. If you can get, if we can get a hundred people to shift their consciousness into a, into a, a space of gratitude, like things can happen. I think. I don't know. Well, I think I think that comes back to Einstein's um, the most important question, right? Is the universe a friendly place? And I think your answer to that question is going to dictate your interpretation. So, if we're in that space, like you said, when you were in pain, if you're in that space of um, wanting it to be a different way, maybe a victimized mindset, these things that we get stuck in, if that's how you see the world, yeah. It's going to be very hard to get yourself to a place of gratitude. Yeah. But if you can get yourself to a place of gratitude and pain, it's a magical experience. Really. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's been, it's been the teacher for everybody. If anybody needs a teacher in that too, it's really funny. It's, it's as simple as getting a heart rate strap. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it truly is. It is an incredible practice. Uh, You put a heart rate strap on. You connect it to, you know, uh, Ben Greenfield has an app. It's called Nature Beat. You download the app. You sync it to your heart rate strap. You look at your heart rate and your heart rate variability. Okay? It is what it is. It's real time. Now, put your hands on your heart. Shut your eyes. I tend to actually look down a little bit, and I envision my heart beating. Mm -hmm. And I feel, I fill myself with gratitude, love. I think about people that I love. I think about how grateful I am for this life and this time. Do that for two to three minutes and now peek and look at your heart rate variability. <laughs> what happens? It, it increases. It improves. Oh, it improves. Real time. Like gratitude is this, is this like, it's like, sorry, you know, your heart is like the keyhole. Yeah. And gratitude is like the key. And you turn it. And good shit happens. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think it's such a sad. It was such a sad turn of events that we sort of, like, carpent. Car, how do you say it? Car. I can't speak. Compartmentalized. <laughs> yes, that's Got the word it. I'm thinking. Like science and religion. Right. You know, and took the mysticism out of the conversation. Right. We disproved, we we focused yeah, on the things we like, could prove, right? All the great scientists of the 14th, 15th, 16th, I don't know if there was scientists in the 14th century. I don't know. I'm, I mean, maybe. I, I'm not a history buff, but I think you take all those great scientists, but all those scientists. The shaman in the jungle and well, there's that they guy, were, but they I think there was something, in, at least in you know medieval Renaissance, all of those guys were sort of like, the great scientists were like, Freemasons and they were sort of into 
some sort of mystical understanding of trying to understand the universe through alchemy and mysteries and understand. And they were probably closer to finding some truth when they were marrying science and that and un unraveling some of that stuff. And then suddenly we, you know, I don't know when it was, but it was like, boom, science was like, oh, God and science became this, like, keep God out of that space. It's like, that seems crazy. I think Galileo was probably the first guy, right? Maybe. But, like, I'm just saying, like, how do you take God out of anything? If if you believe in God and you think God created the universe, how do you fucking take God out of science? He created science. <laughs> If that's what you believe. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. It's like one step further. Why would you not think that he wouldn't have like, you know, and it's always so crazy. Well, you got to prove it. It's like, well, well, there's so many things that we've proven later, you know, like, you know, the tools we have today would definitely change Einstein's opinion on what he saw right. or the data that he had because mm -hmm. he was limited to the information that he had. He, he would see something differently. With the with the data he has now, he would probably have a different story to tell us. Right. For sure. Yeah. He just had more he didn't realize how small and how complex and how you know, he didn't even really understand. he didn't even think about quantum mechanics. Right. Well he I, I think maybe he he hit a few kind of there was there was a few things he couldn't explain. Right, but he had to leave them more open-ended, maybe? Sure. So, you know, he said time travel would be possible, technically. Yeah. So, like, he, he didn't maybe have the... Re like, he was at the extent of his... And maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Well, and he was also was sort of presenting it in a way that Western world would accept it. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's so true. we also don't know what he knew. Right. Right? He might have been like, I know time travel's real, but if I say that, people would say I'm crazy and lock me up. Which has been the story since the beginning of science, right? <laughs> of course. And I think that that's our biggest hang-up. And it kind of gets back to the um, the sort of idea of, like, we're obsessed with knowing. We're obsessed with knowing everything and defining truth before we can take the plunge. But the funny reality is that that's the least important piece, ultimately. If there's something that's been around 5,000 years, like even yoga, like Yoga's been around for a long time. It's the last decade that people are really, since we figured out HRV, and now we can actually quantify that breathing does something. Now now it's a thing. Now breath work is a thing. But it's like, this is, that is yoga. Exhale. Yogi Nando's been talking about breathing and yoga for since the turn of the century. Turmeric. I mean, every product has freaking curcumin in it. That's been around thousands and time. thousands of years. But you know what? Like in the 1920s, no one was taking turmeric. They probably didn't need to either. That's uh, yeah. the truth. They're, you know, we're eating. Less, we were less toxic. Yeah, pre World War II, right? Well, although Great uh, yeah. Depression, I mean, mostly gluten and raw milk, maybe. Maybe, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, I mean, I think some of the people that are old now, they had a healthier diet when they were younger. Yeah, for sure, one hundred percent. And some of the kids, like I don't know how these kids today, the way they're eating, they're going to live to be. They're not going to live very long. They're not. I mean, they're dying. It was crazy last night because we had a bowl of candy for Halloween, and I said that I wasn't going to serve healthy candy, but then we just got the, um, the uh, what is it, Unreal? I don't know what that Whatever. is. It sounds great. So at Whole Foods, <laughs> they have this stuff. It's like less bad. It's like, you know, it's, less it's bad. coconut sugar or something like that instead of uh, a Snickers. But I had the bowl, and we had the Unreal, and we had like a few 
Snickers because my buddy's daughter like did the switch witch thing. So she dumps her candy into my bowl and we just gave it out because but anyways the kids I'm were sure I'll learn all this majorly preferential to the not healthy candy. In fact they could identify the unreal, the candy that was quote healthy, and they would knowingly grab the one that wasn't. One kid, all I had at this point was the healthy candy in the bowl, and he comes to my house and he goes, Hey, this is healthy candy. It's like trying to. I know. That's crazy. We have such a problem with sugar. That is crazy. We haven't even talked about sugar, Joe, which I've been off sugar for a long time, which is the most toxic thing in the world. Yeah. 2020, we're going to do a lot. We should do another episode on sugar because I'm going on the attack in 2020 on sugar. Did I send you that that video from that guy? You did. You did. That was a long talk. That's a long talk. I think I'm about halfway through it. You got to get to the end because it's magical at the end. Yeah. It's, I mean... It is a long talk, but not, not not at the gym on a treadmill. Right. But it's really interesting, like how re- – when you watch that video, for me, it was like, oh, my – I mean, I, I'd stopped sugar before I saw that video, but I was like, wow, it's really, really, bad. really, really bad on the system. Yeah. Like way better. And by the way, that's fruit. Yep. It doesn't matter. It's like uh, sugar is sugar. Any way you slice it up, that's what that book, that's what that talk tells me. And that's a scientist telling you like raw data. Yeah. And I, I've been saying that for a long time and people think I'm nuts for the no fruit thing. But I was just reading the other day that basically humans can have about uh, 15 grams of sugar a day. That's kind of what our bodies can tolerate. That's not even a full apple. But um, that's like, I don't eat, I don't eat like candy or like cake or like things but i still have bread i still have like there's sugar in everything Mm -hmm. so you can't avoid sugar you'll get to 15 grams if you i don't even like i just i just consciously don't like have a donut yeah you know what i mean so i mean i still i don't live this crazy life where i don't have any sugar like i don't really know how to do that but so many things we're doing it we're doing it okay so we do it how do you do it so there's literally no sugar period but stevia, stevia is not sugar. But does the body perceive it as sugar? So you're probably getting some of the same dopamine response. You're probably getting because that's the big argument against a lot of these things. Right. But in terms of insulin and glucose, it's not affecting that. But some of the argument against sugar and against any artificial sweeteners of any kind, and actually uh, stevia is an herbal sweetener for the record. But right. Yeah. Um, it's very possible you're getting a similar brain response. Right. But you're at least not getting the toxic toxic blood sugar response. Right. So if your relationship with food is unhealthy and you're, you know, you put a drop of our stevia on your tongue. If you're an addict like that, that's a little messed up. If you're doing it for the for the dopamine surge or if you're overusing it or if you're putting a dropper full, one drop of stevia, it's 300 times sweeter than sugar. Yeah, stevia is really sweet. So like one drop in a 24-ounce beverage, like we have the Runga Mule at the bungalow. Yeah. So like one or two drops is what you need. Yeah. And then you're good. That's interesting. Yeah, it's it's like I, we do our best not to give our son sugar, see yeah. what happens. I mean, he has some fruit. Like mm-hmm. it's hard not to, but well, nothing like no chocolate or candy or like. Yeah. Because yeah, it's going to happen. 
yeah, you can't stop it. He's going to go somewhere and someone's going to do it, give it to him. But that book, The Third Brain, yeah, they talk about the fungus that grows in the stomach, mm-hmm. that goes up the vagal nerve, that goes to this part of the brain, that taps the part of the brain that wants sugar. Now you start thinking that there's a fungus inside of me that's telling my brain to crave more sugar. Crazy. Scientists found out in Italy. In Italy. Yeah. That's crazy. For all you fungus weirdos. Yeah. I remember, uh, yeah, I mean, um, there's, a, there's a lot there. And I mean, Julia Ross, there were some books that I read years ago that kind of like put me on a different trajectory nutrition-wise. One of them is called The Mood Cure. One of them is called Diet Cure. Huh. But she talks a lot about, and I haven't read them now in 10 years, but they're still out there. Um, talks a lot about like that neurotransmitter problem where our food creates this shift and things like gluten or sugar create such change in the gut that we can't produce our neurotransmitters and you get yourself in a very addictive cycle. Well, not, not to me, I always, I always bring it back to George, but George is always like, don't trust your emotions. Right. Because he is, it's just a chemical reaction in the body. Right. He was always like, you've got to learn how to listen to your high self, you know, tap into the universal consciousness to make decisions, not based on in emotions because emotions are chemical reactions in the body. Right. And you know, people don't like to hear that because they love their emotions. But I think it's equally dangerous to be too in your mind. I remember, uh, one of my coaches, he, uh, one of our first meetings, I was like, Hey, you know, Arnold, I, uh, I picked up your book and he goes, that was the dumbest thing you could have done. Why the hell would you do that? He's like, I'm my whole job here is to get you into your heart. Right. All my book's going to do is put you into your head. Right. Ooh, right. I'm feeling nauseous again. All right. Yeah. It's been a long one. It's been a long one. Yeah. All right. Thanks. All right. Well, this has been great. Hey, it's Wait, been a I'll come back anytime. We're going to talk about sugar. Oh, let's January do it. January 2020. We're going to do a sugar episode. Oh, I'm so in. All right. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Brent, for sharing your story and the stories of Hollywood, Mick Jagger's <laughs> party. I mean, this thing was, I mean, we've touched on aliens and ayahuasca and Mick Jagger in one episode. So I think that that's a pretty all-encompassing show. That's a good show. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Brent, any kind of closing thoughts? Uh, where can people find you? The Bungalow website? Just bungalow.com. The bungalow.com is our website and that's where we... That's it. That's, or we'll Facebook or Instagram, all that stuff. We'll link to all Brent's websites and things in the show notes as well. And guys, thank you so much for listening. This is another long one, but I hope you enjoyed Brent's stories and his episodes. Or his episode and uh yeah we're signing off here guys take care bye thank you guys so much for listening to today's show i hope you enjoyed it for the show notes to today's episode and every episode of stacked just head to coachjodi.com stacked and don't forget to leave us a review wherever you found this show every two weeks we send one lucky reviewer a gift card worth $150 to kettlebellkings.com, one of my favorite websites. Good luck and thanks for listening.